Episode 9. Kit Carson, stills photographer. Oh, man, I don't know where to start. Uh, this was this was a good one. This was heavy. To the point where after Kit left, I literally had to lay down on the couch and take a nap for about 45 minutes because I was so mentally um, drained and frustrated and irritated with people fucking blows my mind what assholes people can be uh, to others because of uh, that individual's lifestyle and their personal choices, which we get into. Um, yeah, Kit is a incredible stills photographer um, that spent time documenting Kamala Harris's presidential campaign and covered quite a bit of... Uh, politics as a photographer um and then from there went into working with team legion which is a criterium cycling team with justin and Corey williams and that's actually where kit and i met um 2021 i was in tulsa oklahoma doing a project for rafa with team legion directed by a dear friend of mine jen stafford who I'm trying to get on this damn podcast through hell or high water. It's going to happen. But uh, that's where we met Kit um, in Tulsa in 2021. Kit is the team photographer for them. Um, And then last year, in 2022, Kit spent time documenting the NFL, um, handling photography work for the NFL. And before all this, Kit was a uh, professional cyclist racing all across the country on his bicycle father worked for Saturday Night Live and uh, yeah it's a hell of a story hell of a story and it was super fun to sit down with Kit this was the first time I've seen him since 2021 at the Tulsa Tough once again just you know we stayed connected through Instagram so it was rad now you know a couple years later sit down with Kit and get to pick his brain and hear his journey and his ups and his downs Um, he shares um, when he came out uh, as a gay man and how um, people can suck because of that but he has a great great attitude about it but super inspiring and I really enjoyed hearing how he manages that and uh, works through it and does fucking amazing work behind the camera as an amazing human and it was so much fun to sit here and hear a story it just fucking wiped me out because it was it was a lot to process on my end. Just like I said, frustrated hearing how uh, cruel people can be for really no reason. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, hope everyone enjoys this one. If you haven't already, Instagram at underscore the failed experiment, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review, comment, share. Yeah, if you want to leave a donation at Kyle Cowling on Venmo, I don't know why you would, but if for some reason you want to support further, that's the way to do it. Uh, because we have no sponsors at all. It's me, myself, and I, and Jeff Simpson, who helps me out on the social media side of things. <clears throat> and uh, if there's a guest you want to hear that um, I haven't had on yet, granted, I've recorded these months and months ago just to uh, save myself the headache trying to chase down people and maintain this weekly schedule um so this was recorded quite a while ago but 
I don't know why that's uh, relevant to you. But if there's a guest you want to have on that I haven't had on yet or you think would be good, uh, shoot me a DM, comment, message, email, text, uh, whatever your method of communication might be. Let me know. I'll see what I can do. And um, if there's someone you know uh, that would be good and you're friends with them and you want to connect us, even better. And uh, if there's anyone out there that knows, uh, I don't know, Jenny Taft, Brittany Force, you know, people like that <clears throat> that uh, want to connect us, that'd be awesome. Because uh, I have a wish list of guests that I want on, and uh, that's just a couple of the names. That would be rad. Okay, I've said too much. Uh, enjoy. Episode 9, Kit Carson absolute fucking badass photographer please go find him on instagram look at his work all around great human and uh regardless of uh, our beliefs can we just be kind to people that's all all right let's do it enjoy so i these liquid deaths so the first when we met on that are we sponsored no we're not liquid death no we're not maybe one day mountain water we're uh we're paying for this out of our own pockets right now (laughs) but when we met in tulsa Mm -hmm. that was the first time i had any idea what liquid death was because i remember i think they were sponsoring the tulsa tough oh i think but i just remember like seeing all these yeah and i was like yeah oh my god there's like children and athletes drinking beer right now because i didn't know what it was (laughs) And then I remember... It is deceiving. Yeah, it was. And then uh, Jen Stafford, who was directing that project, she was like, no, it's water. It's like a sparkling water. And I was like, never heard of it. (laughs) And now I'm like obsessed with it. Yeah. It's so good. How much is a can? Do you know? I don't know what a can is. I've been buying like the... The packs. The packs. And it's like 15 bucks for a 12 pack. So... Nice. Yeah. It's amazing just what... How you can take something... So ordinary. and And just put it in a... Melting skull can. I know. It's so good. Nice. So good. Liquid death. Get your mouth <laughs> Shout out. Water. Sponsor us, please. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I want to start, I guess, and for context, like, I don't know really shit about you other than your work. Mm. Um, so I'm, like, super excited to pick your brain and, like, hear your whole journey. So to start with, I guess, where where did you grow up? Um, so I was born in New York. Okay. Uh, and my parents... They moved to LA in, uh, when I was two years old. Okay. And so, uh, they made the shift. My dad was making, uh, uh, a bit of a career shift. He was working on, uh, Saturday night live and late night with David Letterman for oh, wow. a very long time. And my mom is a copywriter. Okay. What was and your so dad? My what dad was, was a photographer. Oh, wow. And so he was the guy who shot all of the bumpers in and out of like late night with David Letterman. Wow. And so, you know, the catalog now is well over like 2000 images. And so every time that they'd go in and out of the commercial break, he and his, uh, you know, creative design team, they basically would go out into the streets of New York late at night or in hotel rooms or at restaurants or whatever. And you could kind of just envision, uh, uh, a, a normal scene with a bat, a bus passing by a billboard and mm. on the billboard, it could say late night. And then, and then on the side of the bus, it would say with David Letterman and everything was, you know, hand painted in and stuff. Mm. And so he was a photographer for that. So he did, wow. uh, he did that for quite a long time. And then, uh, they transitioned and moved to LA when, um, yeah, 
career just kind of pulled them both out west. And mm-hmm. then they had me, brought me to L.A. as a bebe. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, and then I've been here ever since. Okay. So you don't you don't really remember anything from being in New York at all? or No. no I, I get out there every couple of years or depending on if there's work or not. Yeah. So, but yeah. otherwise, yeah, I've, I've kind of stayed in LA all the time. It's funny when I talk to friends and I'm like, I went to preschool, like three doors down from this bar that we're at. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> most people don't have that. Like, especially yeah. in LA there it's, it's the land of transplants. So totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, I, uh, what part of LA? Uh, West LA. Okay. So like West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Westwood, uh, that whole kind of just area. So my, my parents divorced when I was six. Mm-hmm. And so when they split up, they kind of bounced around independently of one another for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of traversed all throughout LA, depending on like school districts and stuff like that. So yeah, I've, I've yeah, I've lived throughout how, the west side of LA. Yeah. Nice. How, uh, how were you academically in school? Was that something you enjoyed or not so much? Uh, well, so my, I wasn't a great student. I'm, okay. I'm pretty studious. I just, the way that I like absorb information is, you know, the, the cliche, like autodidactic. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think like for me, I, I couldn't sit in a room and just being spoken to for hours on end. And then yeah. when I was eight years old, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Okay. And so that diagnosis, it was a bit of a, it was like a combination between ADHD as well as Tourette's. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was a kind of a tricky relationship with me and this, the, the school system because I clearly needed support. Mm-hmm. And so from the diagnosis, I essentially was being shopped around to, you know, doctor's offices and being put on, you know, all sorts of medication to, calm my crazy butt down. Yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of lived that life until I was, uh, 11 and I, you know, my, my time while on medication was incredibly, uh, kind of tricky and complicated. I, there were days where I was being, uh, over prescribed, uh, or accidental overdosing because of, you know, I, I had everything from creams to patches to pills, Mm -hmm. things that hadn't even been, were very like experimental still. Mm -hmm. And so like throughout my entire third grade, I was kind of narcoleptic. I would like be on, on so much medication that by, you know, school started at just say seven 38. And then by like 11, I would just pass out at my desk and then I'd sleep and then I'd wake up and it's like, one or two o'clock and school's over. Yeah. And my mom, my mom, I remember my, she told me the story where she came and dropped me off to school one day and the doc, the teacher, you know, commented that she liked her dress. And so the next day my mom brings the dress on the coat hanger and she's like, please don't fail my son. Take the dress. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, it was like that basically up until 11 and I was like, I can't, I can't, as a kid, keep up with this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know who I'm going to be today kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just was like, I would rather be 100%, you know, off my rocker mm-hmm. than the unpredictability of what that looks like. And it impacted my my personal relationships, my family, my friends. It was, you know, I, I wasn't 
latching on to anything. Mm -hmm. And so then when I was 13, my dad introduced me to the sport of cycling. Okay. Uh, and he used to race as a kid. And okay. so he, you know, as a proud father, he's like, kid, you know, I know you've been going through a bunch of stuff. I don't care if you like it, but I want you to try this. Mm -hmm. And he took me to the Encino Velodrome. Mm -hmm. uh, on a Thursday night youth class with a white t-shirt, my mom's spandex and some, you know, sneakers. Okay. And uh, that was the beginning of my relationship to the sport of cycling. Wow. wow. And so, and then from that moment, my, my entire life just changed. I went from a DNF student to gays and bees. Uh, wow. I was eventually like racing around the country with, you know, my local teams. And then when I got onto the national team was traveling around the world for many years, uh, you know, racing world cups and world championships and kind of just like living this very alternative lifestyle as a, as a, you know, young professional athlete. Uh, yeah. and while also maintaining grades, which was, you know, kind of a bit of a stark contrast. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Why do you think like the cycling was able to help with the grades? Was that like a way to expend all your energy you think? Or I think, well, so we eventually, you know, this kind of all led to me doing a lot of self-discovery after the fact when I was in my late teens and early twenties. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, the, I got lots of questions, especially around the whole ADHD thing, um, you know, on the, the, the grounds and basis of ADHD, how does one get diagnosed? You know, it's ADHD is interesting because it's something that you can't pick up in, in brain scans or uh, blood work. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, you know, a questionnaire. And essentially if you meet the threshold of the questionnaire and it could be anything from like, Kyle, can you sit still for extended periods of time? Yeah. And you ask enough of these questions and you get them right. And then that essentially is how you qualify. Okay. And so from there, you are immediately diverted into where medication is king. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no, most people don't really have the conversation around the alternatives that you can have to approaching an, a, a child's ADHD diagnosis or even an adult. My mom got, you know, diagnosed with adult ADHD. Okay. And so eventually when I was, uh, I was 19, I started this little foundation and our, goal was to essentially connect kids with ADHD to sport mm -hmm. as an alternative to just medication. Mm -hmm. And so from there, that's where we started doing, you know, supporting velodrome youth programs and distributing bikes and issuing grants and, you know, going to schools and elementary schools uh, and hosting like, you know, uh, gold sprints, kind of like fun assemblies and stuff just to kind of like get kids minds thinking and like the, the more athletic sense. And yeah. I feel like oftentimes, I mean, it's just been proven time and time again that, you know, a, a moving mind is a healthy and working mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, for me to be able to find an environment that kind of, uh, unlocked the potential that I could have from my ability to, you know, my abilities stem from ADHD instead of it just being this kind of like handicap. Yeah. Uh, it just sort of reframed my approach to life, uh, my relationship to my surroundings, uh, how I kind of tapped into different resources. And so, yeah, it, uh, I, I've not been on medication since I was 
uh, 11 years old for treating medication. And so ever since then, it's just been, you know, through my life as a professional athlete, eventually when I retired, moving into, you know, civilian life, you know, I still lead a very, very active lifestyle. And I use that essentially as my, you know, I can tell just from being me, if I need a little more exercise, if I need to have a palate cleanser of an evening or a day. Yeah. 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 How old are you now? 31. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's from 11 to 31 without medication and like being able to find that solution. That's it's, I think the thing that I talk to a lot of families even to this day about is like, you know, we, in the year of 2023, everybody's looking for that instant meal gratification solution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's hard to be a person right now. And I think like, especially if I'm a, if I'm a single mother and I have a child who's bouncing off the walls and I work uh, an all consuming job, uh, (laughs) option one, you know, go through kind of like Nancy Drew mode investigative, you know, looking for sports or extracurricular activities or the arts or something to really like provoke my child's, uh, you know, authentic self and unlock that potential with, um, you know, an ADHD diagnosis, or do I just put them on medication? Mm-hmm. A story that I, uh, love to look back on is essentially this, uh, this woman named Jillian Lynn and she, Jillian Lynn is a choreographer and she choreographed cats okay. and Phantom of the opera. And when Jillian Lynn was a child, she was a lot like me. Mm-hmm. She was bouncing off the walls. She was all over the place. And, uh, her mom took her to see a doctor and the doctor had a lo- long conversation with Jillian. And, uh, once, the doctor was done speaking with Jillian. She, he leaves the room and he turns on the radio. He shuts the door and he starts speaking to his, her mother and they look inside and Jillian starts to dance. And the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with her. She's a dancer, put her in dance school. And from there, her entire life changed. And she goes on to choreograph some of the the most prolific, you know, shows of our time. Mm -hmm. He could have also said that she should just be put on medication. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of instances in the way that we approach, you know, uh, mental health, uh, sport, our surroundings, it's, it's, it's a challenging, uh, space to be in, but I think it's well worth it to try and identify all solutions possible Mm -hmm. prior to just leaning into the sort of the, you know, the easy way out. Yeah. 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 Most definitely. I've been, so I've been in therapy for a little over two years now. Um, and thankfully like my therapist has never even hinted at the idea of, Hey, maybe you need to go see a psychiatrist and find medication. And even if she did, I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, I don't, for me, that's not something I'm interested in. And I even remember like, I grew up racing, uh, motocross and I remember 
I broke my ankle. I dislocated and broke my ankle and shattered my tib fib and like all, all this stuff. Mm. Have had surgery, whole deal. And I remember after getting released from the hospital, they prescribed me Vicodin mm. and leave the hospital. My mom and I go to the Rite Aid or wherever our prescription was at. And we get the prescription. And I took, remember I took one. And I remember doing that and then afterwards giving that bottle to my mom and being like, throw it away. Because it fucked me up. Mm. Like I was high. Hmm. And I was like, this is an incredible. How old were you? Man, I was, I was probably in my mid-20s mm. at this time. Because so I had like this, like two chapters of my life on dirt bikes were like from five to 18, I raced every single weekend, right. Saturday practice, Sunday race. Um, and then end of 05, I quit racing, got a job. I was working at Disneyland and just like checked out of that whole world. And then in oh, end of 07, beginning of 08, I got a job as an associate editor slash photo editor for Transworld Motocross magazine. Mm. Um, and part of like, your job you got to ride dirt bikes during the week right. and that's how i ended up breaking my ankle and i was like yeah 21 22 and i just remember yeah that one vicodin i was like no i mm. don't i could i can see how people get addicted to this right and throwing it away and i just spent the next however many months just taking like ibuprofen right and just like white knuckling it right um, yeah, uh... and I've, I've gone through that a couple times getting hurt and then you know Here's your here's your prescription for Vicodin or right. whatever it may be. And Have like, you seen Dope Sick on Hulu? No, Michael Keaton. You should mm. watch it. I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a it's a wild ride, but it basically, uh, you know, shares the story around the oxy, mm -hmm. you know, and the family and and everything that kind of like all the intricacies and how people. You know, just like you and I are walking one day and trip and fall and hurt themselves and need a something to ail that pain because it is beyond manageable Yeah, from the person. And yeah, you know, all the, all the naughtiness that kind of came through. And I think like, I, I underscore with the fact that like, obviously modern medicine there, there are kids and people out there that medication for all sorts of stuff and ailments is completely valid. Yes. I think like yeah. we're, we're clearly just so conditioned to, you know, I wouldn't, you know, assuming one day I do become a parent myself, I wouldn't want to approach the, the, the way that I treat my child's mental health the same way that I order a rideshare car. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or order my food. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's tricky. And I think like now, you know, I, I was having this conversation last night with a friend just about furniture. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, I went to a furniture shop recently just to kind of like, browse mm -hmm. and real proper furniture is expensive. Yeah. Proper. Yeah. And I think like, as I've grown older and, you know, can, you know, have the, the, just looking at the possibility of owning maybe a nicer piece of non, you know, chipboard yeah. furniture one day. Yeah. I look at stuff and I'm thinking, wow, you know, it, I've not been conditioned to see the true value behind proper pieces of woodworking and craftsmanship and mm -hmm. furniture and stuff. I'm, I'm used to living in this very kind of cheap threshold. Yeah. And I think like the same thing when it comes to the decision-making on exactly like, where do you want to pull the punches in your life when it comes to the decisions 
that are made around your mental health, the food that you put in your body, the furniture and the chairs that you sit at, you know? And I think like, it's, it's important to try and like, just continue to be curious and explore and see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise what seems normal uh, actually is not always the best quality, for instance, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's, yeah, very, very relatable. I, I've talked about this in therapy a little bit, but I've sometimes like, like I never, I from age zero to seven years old lived in a house with mm-hmm. my mom, my mom and uh, my grandparents. That was it. And then from that point on, there was a lot of moving uh, this homeless stint where we were, my mom and I were living in hotels and then apartments and bouncing all over the place. Um, and we eventually found our way back into like a house, but it was for me very uncomfortable. I never like, never felt like home, mm. you know? Uh, and throughout my career, there's been a lot of struggles and points where I'm like, I should probably give this up and go get a real job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to the point where like, I was like financially, like, like had debt collectors coming after me, uh, negative money in my bank account to right. the point where like, I couldn't afford to go do a shoot because I didn't have money in my bank account to put gas in my car to go to the shoot. Like that. Yeah. Like that gnarly. And like, yeah. Yeah. And one of my, my best friends from high school, who's my best friend to this day and was my best man at my wedding. Um, at this, when this was all going on, I remember we were at target and somehow he was able to like court, like course it out of me, like what was going on. And he was Mm. like, Hey, here's 20 bucks to like, Cause I wasn't even eating. Mm. Um, he's like, here's 20 bucks. Hopefully this can get you by until you have some money coming. And so I'd like use this 20 bucks to live on for a week. And I ate Taco Bell for a week. Cause it was like, you, know, you can get a bean burrito for like 75 cents. <laughs> so I just, I saw I ate for a week until I had a paycheck coming so that I could at least get like back to zero. Right. And now like to be where I am today, like, I actually have like this weird sense of guilt sometimes of like having people come over. Like our house isn't big by any means. It's a small, lovely. but like, I'm pretty sure I've seen this in an ad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very proud of like what we have now. And I know that I've like worked for it and that like, it wasn't handed to me, you know, like, so I, I guess my point is like being able to appreciate, you know, having like a nice dining room table or couch or whatever. But knowing like, Hey, I know where I came from. Right. And it's not like, oh yeah, here you go. So it's, I'm able to appreciate it. I remember one of my ahas with my therapist. This was a long time ago. It was the transition from, you know, I kind of grew with uh, either a blend of financial insecurity or money conversations with money conversations in my family and with me specifically have always just been very complicated and Mm -hmm. tiptoey. And so I think like for me, what I found was, especially when I was going through, you know, being a pro athlete in a blue collar sport, you know, that is just inherently hard and you, you know, you eat what you kill. And so it's very much like, you know, the hustle, 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 Um, you know, and, I think when I was graduating from high school, was I graduated in 2009. Okay. And a year before, it was the 
you know, financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And both of my parents who are independent freelancers of ever, yeah. you know, it was constantly just, you know, it was that conversation. Yeah. And so for me, when, you know, we, as we, as a family just continued to traverse that space and time and then made our way through to trying to figure out, you know, now I was eventually leaving the sport and I was getting a proper job, you know, working in marketing at Oakley, okay. you know, I was making more money than I knew it to do with at that point. I was yeah. young, you know? Yeah. And so it was just much easier for me to spend whatever I was getting. And I couldn't understand why, you know, I was, I was living well outside of my means. And so I finally was talking to my therapist and it was essentially just like, it was way more comfortable I was so used to and conditioned to not having money mm -hmm. that I would end up just subconsciously spending it so that I could kind of just go back to that place. I was yeah. way more comfortable, you know, being on the down and out yeah. and kind of freaking out and not knowing what's going to happen next than to like start saving for the first time in my life, Yeah, you know, and especially, you know, over the past couple of years where I'm like now debt free, mm -hmm. which was such a huge, I started going into debt when I was 17 years old mm -hmm. and I just had that credit card, you know, life yeah. kind of follow me for virtually throughout my entire twenties. Mm -hmm. And then when I finally transitioned into, you know, being debt free, it was kind of just like, I had to have a lot of infrastructure and people around me to sort of like teach me the skills that I was never taught or educated about in terms of like being fiscally responsible, maintaining your money, where to put it, how to save, how to grow it. I mean, it's just like a, I money in like my world, it's either in my life has always either been a problematic subject mm -hmm. or something that is just not truly valued because yeah. it's the, it's the experiences, it's the relationships, it's, you know, it's not the, the things, it's the people. Yeah. And so I, growing up in Los Angeles, you know, going to Beverly Hills High School, like I grew up surrounded by people who were so broke, all they had was money. Mm -hmm. And you just saw the way that that sort of perspective trickled into the way that they treated themselves, their families, their friends, their worlds, their professional lives. And I just didn't want to be anything like them. Yeah. And so I distanced myself from them and, and from there, because a lot of these folks had so much money, money in my eyes was the enemy. Mm -hmm. It was like, Oh my God, this is the thing. It's, it's like, you know, that Vicodin story. Yeah. You're like, I just need to not have it in mm -hmm. my life. And so my relationship to money really had to, you know, take a long time to sort of heal, uh, to make it feel like I wasn't a bad person in days where I had a little bit of savings. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel, you know, uh, like total imposter syndrome because I just always, you know, it just, it was weird. It was complicated. Yeah. And I yeah. think like now I've gotten to the point where it's like, you know what? I, 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 really hustle and work hard. And, you know, I put in so much time and energy into the things that I'm really passionate about that mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's okay to, to not want to always work for free. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Yeah. You know, being, being okay to like enter that space and like just being very transactional and matter of fact when it comes to, you know, invoices and rate and stuff like that. I always mm-hmm. thought like, you know, hell, I'll just work for free. Yeah. You know, if, yeah. if it gets me in the door, if it, uh, if it, you know, eases the tension in the room and whatever. And that's just not the marketplace that we like live in. And it also additionally, and this is the issue that I have with a lot of like content creators is that all that it does is it, you know, it, uh, downtrends the marketplace for everybody else. Yep. Big time. You know, it's the unspoken union rule. (laughs) Yep. And so that, that doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Yeah. How, how, um, it's that whole story is, insanely relatable to me. Um, I would say the other thing too, that I've, I've noticed with that relationship with money is especially in like our world of being these freelance artists and even, you know, in cycling, as you said, like a blue collar sport, it's like, we don't have the consistency of a check coming in every two weeks and a retirement plan and all Mm -hmm. this shit. It's like, I've had months where it's like three to four months and there's just nothing going on. And you're like, what the fuck happened? Right. And it's like, so it's hard to even be able to manage because it's like, as soon as you get whatever you need, you got to pay this off or it's going to go to that. And then you're almost like, how the fuck am I supposed to ever get ahead? Right. It is such a lifestyle. It is. It is. It is a total muscle group. I have friends who work in, you know, tech and startup life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they are just running on uh, a a bunch of illegal substances and, you know, 40 hour days. <laughs> yeah. And they're more comfortable being in that environment with their heart rate, just living at that, you know, minimum yeah. than being a freelancer. Yeah. And I'm like, as a freelancer, you know, sure. There are the days, you know, same thing, like go weeks or months without something coming in or whatever. And that kind of like worry and you're hustling and you're talking around to people and trying to network, but also seem cool about it. Yeah. And then, <laughs> but the idea of like doing that and having like a consistent income, but also just needing to be, you know, so hopped up on, on, you know, that lifestyle, mm-hmm. like, like it's, it's so unappetizing to yeah. me yeah. on like a fundamental level. Yeah. I would also say too, like. For me, when I when I was young, like when I graduated high school, I worked immediately at a limousine company doing reservations, so like answering nice. phones and like putting in reservations. Nice. And then from there, dude, I was terrible at that job. I, this is a great story. So I never got – I quit. I worked there for six months. I never got fired because I – a longtime friend of mine, uh, Rob Vaughn, he owns this limousine company that's mm. now like – massive it's called best vip transportation like you probably see the buses in la nice yeah he's really grown it but so i knew him through riding uh and racing motocross and he knew i needed a job when i graduated high school so he gave me this job and i was terrible at it like i would send limousines or these buses to locations like on the wrong dates Mm. and they would show up and (laughs) to this big like ritz carlton resort to pick up you know 50 people and it's the i sent them there on the wrong day how (laughs) long did you last six months (laughs) six months and i should have been fired probably like three months in um but it was literally it was one of those like he's my friend and he's trying to like help you know help me out and work with me and it was oh my gosh it was so bad and then (laughs) I got a job at Disneyland 
Oh, nice. Um, Were you a character? No, I worked in attractions. Okay, uh, cool. So I remember... attraction kid. <laughs> yeah, so when I got hired there, I remember going to tell Rob, like, hey, I, you know, here's my two weeks. And he was like, I'm so happy for you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay you out for the rest of the month. You can just go home today. Oh, Because <laughs> I was just my. like such a liability <laughs> and he wasn't a dick about it all. Like yeah. he was a very kind all the way to the end. But I just remember like, Oh, like that was like, what a sweetheart. Like, and then in retrospect, I'm like, Oh yeah, I was a fucking liability and they just needed me out of there. <sighs> um, so like, Went to Disneyland. That's how I met my wife. We worked on the Jungle Cruise together. Like we you dro- did not. dead serious. Drove the boats and told the jokes. That <laughs> that's why I saw like all you, the, yeah. that was all our jungle stuff I'm right there. I'm looking at the yeah. jungle. It's the love wall. Yeah, that's the love wall. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about a meet cute. Yeah. So yeah, we met there. She was a senior in high school. I was 19 and like a year out of high school. And I was like, Ooh, look at me. Like, you know, dating a little high schooler. Wow. <laughs> you you know? cradle robber. Yeah. Even though it's only a one year difference, but like anyways, from Disneyland, I went to Starbucks. Mm. I got fired there after two weeks. <laughs> uh, and then I went to an art store and I was stocking shelves at an art store for like seven months. Mm. And then from there, I went to Target, and I was a cashier for, like, almost a year. Oh, wow. And throughout all this, I was trying to t- chase the photography career, because that mm. was, like, my background. I was a stills photographer. I really wanted to be a photojournalist. Oh, right. Uh, so I was chasing that, and then I finally got my break with the magazine, end of 07, early 08. And then ever since then, I've been, like, freelance. Mm-hmm. And... The flexibility, like this morning, took my dog to puppy camp, and then I went down the beach, and I went did a four-mile run this morning, nice. and now we're doing this. And it's like, yeah, sometimes shit can get slow, and it can be scary and yeah. frustrating, but I, you also have that flexibility of like, I can go do this in the morning, and then go do that, and yeah. it's like, I'm not locked in this box of like a nine-to-five and some asshole boss over my shoulder. Right. It took me a long time to kind of... I remember, especially when you're like young and getting into your, your field of choice. And even if you pivot, I mean, I'm on my third career change, you oh, know, wow. okay. like, you know, first I wanted to be a pro athlete, go to the Olympics. And then I worked at marketing and mm-hmm. at Oakley and, you know, wanted to kind of like live that lifestyle and be in brand. And then, you know, I eventually made the intentional move into, you know, nonfiction storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think the thing that I would probably recommend to anyone getting into any field of choice, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly posed with the question by people because I'm very sure of like where I'm at in my career, what I'm doing. I'm mm. very confident about it. Mm-hmm. It also took a lot of like blood, sweat and tears. But I think the question that, a lot of people are asking us like, what's the secret sauce? How did you like, how did you know? What were you looking for? Did you go to school? Did you go to like whatever? How did it provoke to be now? Mm -hmm. And my thing is just like, I try to experience as much as humanly possible so I could just figure out what I don't want. Okay. And most people go at the opposite end. They're like, okay, I'm going to go into, you know, getting a proper education and I want to lean into this field and I'm going to see if I love this just enough. But by that point, it's a hundred thousand dollars later in debt and you're kind of whatever. And I think like for me, just the way that I, I kind of like my relationship to my surroundings 
and how I've been able to kind of like fine tune uh, is always just been, you know, explore, 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 you know, you know, try and like touch every door handle. And if one is blazing hot, then all right, I have my answer. Just that's not my door. And then you just kind of like go down to the next. Mm -hmm. But my, you know, my, my life over the past, whatever, 15 years has just been very, you know, blessed be those who are flexible for they will not be bent out of shape, you know, just try, try Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. And I, I think like, I, when I even got into like photojournalism and TV, you know, my first TV jobs was in casting, Okay, you know, and I was, I was going from being like, you know, a pro athlete to, you know, going to race around the world to then making uh, the switch into working at Oakley. And then, you know, the transition from all that, it, it, I think like, you know, making 150 bucks pre-tax a day mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, wrangling a bunch of MasterChef juniors mm-hmm. and, you know, photographing gay nightclubs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just like, you know, the more that you kind of just like lean into and being open to exploring stuff and not yeah. interpreting your lack of just like, oh my God, I know what I want to do because so many people don't do that. Like, and I think that people just need to understand that like, that's not normal. Yeah. You know, we can't all wake up and, and just be like, oh, I figured it out yeah. because chances are you'll, you'll want to change. Yeah. So I think as long as you're just open to, to that possibility of, you know, changing your career or the version of it, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, that to me has opened up so many doors for me personally, especially in the types of storytelling that I, I work with, you know, my, my relationship to, you know, photographing cycling and, you know, last season with the NFL and stuff, it would mm-hmm. not have opened up if I was just hardlining and, in, in you know, conflict storytelling. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, I enjoy it. I think it was also a really great palate cleanser because I was very burnt out after, you know, essentially four or five years of just hardcore, you know, really challenging stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> that's a great point. I spent, I spent, I think 14 or 15 years basically full time in action sports, motocross industry as first as that stills photographer. And then most of it as a filmmaker. Mm. Um, and I thought pretty much the whole time that that this is the lane I want to be in. And I was like, I had this like naive thought that like I could be, I could use my, my medium as a way to like help change the sport and Mm. like show what these videos could look like. Cause I was really more so in, and I still am into the storytelling side of things. And these more like documentary type pieces. Whereas a lot of the stuff in that world is more like, music video based. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I grew up on as a kid watching these old VHS tapes. But it was like, to me, it was like, that's cool, but it's been done. How do we progress that? Like keep moving forward and think progressively and thinking forward. And I was always in this more artistic storytelling side of things. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can do this in a way that's like visually attractive and the story is compelling and like it can inspire other people to want to do the same thing. I was naive and incredibly wrong, (laughs) not even close. And as I was getting older, I was also realizing like, I wanted to tell more of a story and I'm kind of like 
all these athletes kind of have the same thing where they got pulled out of school at a young age. They were quote unquote homeschooled and raced their dirt bike until they could go pro go pro doesn't work out. They have no education. Their mom and dad are divorced. They have a strained relationship with their families (laughs) and now what the fuck? And it's like, how many times can you kind of tell the same story over and over? What a template. Yeah. (laughs) Not that far off of cycling. Yeah, I want to get into that because I'm curious. Uh, But I got to the point where I was like, I want to get more into this like scripted narrative kind of Hollywood side of things. Mm. And in 2018, I started making that transition. And now in 2023, like that's pretty much solely what I'm doing is like more commercial stuff, music video stuff. And he's like scripted short films. Nice. But it's fucking scary because after 2022, I made the conscious decision to be like, I can't go back to this. I'm a hamster on the wheel and mm. I'm not getting any, anywhere. Like if I'm going to do what I say I want to do and become like, like work on these big projects, like I gotta, I gotta just kind of go all in on it. So that's what. This, How did it feel to, you know, putting no out into the world? Uh, hard, uh-huh. very hard yeah. and scary, especially like, like we were talking about in this career path. It's like, if you don't, if you're not working that right. day, you're not making money. And like having a, a kid on the way, like my wife, my wife's due in June. So a couple months. And it's like, sometimes I'm like, going to really make the right decision. Right. But I think through therapy and I was talking about this yesterday with my buddy Jordan, who was on, like, I'm the most calm right now. I think I've ever been. That's nice. And just like at peace. What's that like? <laughs> can i have whatever that is <laughs> it's it's literally just i swear to god it's it's all i give all the kudos to my therapist and just i think and being older too like how old are you now i'm 36 mm-hmm. um just like i don't know i'm i'm, I'm cool with whatever is going to happen is what's going to happen i know that i'm good behind the camera and i have the skills and i just kind of gotta keep pushing and plugging away and it'll happen mm. and, but like not for the first time ever, just not like stressing out as hard as I used to. And, right. and do you feel imposter syndrome by not ev- stressing out? Yeah, I do actually. <laughs> yeah, I do. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. That's a great question. I do. Yeah. It's, and we talk about that too in therapy. It's like how to, how to handle that and how to recognize it and like what to do to like help combat it. And right. it's definitely like, I've had moments already this year where I'm just like talking to my wife and I'm just like, like what the fuck? Mm. Like, I guess it's, it's back to getting a real job, Mm. but I'm able to like, just talk myself off the ledge a lot quicker now. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. It's real. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it is so funny that like, and I, I, I think that for me, the product of my, or the environments that I surround myself in, and especially when it comes to, like, the people, it dawned on me a while ago that I just don't hang out with, like, photographers. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I I am all over the place, and I'm in the rare instances where, you know, I'm not alone from traveling or something. Like, you know, if I'm going to have a bunch of people over for dinner, I don't really have, you know, all my photo friends kind of like live far away. Mm-hmm. And so I have friends, you know, in, in all my little different tribes. Yeah. And so I think like I, I have tried to surround myself with people that don't 
make me second guess my like worth, value, surroundings, mm-hmm. professional career choices, stuff like that. And I think like it becomes sort of like I love being surrounded by people that provoke a lot of authenticity. Yeah. And I think the thing that I found with a lot of those friendships is that in order to be authentic, you just can't have people kind of uh, throwing mud at you, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, you know, being able to garner certain friendships over, especially like during the pandemic until now and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went through a, a breakup last year and I think like finding people who are just okay with what you're doing mm-hmm. and they come in and have a perspective only when you ask for it. Mm-hmm. And I think like for me, that has been certainly like way more, uh, for me, it's been very gratifying because I don't wake up at night in the middle of the night, you know, aside from a deadline, worrying about if I'm doing the right or wrong thing just because mm-hmm. of someone else's vibe. Yeah. And it's tricky here in Los Angeles where everybody is, you know, borderline type A, (laughs) borderline, (laughs) you know, deep state type A uh, and all over the place. And everybody has a perspective. And like, I think there's, there's a, there's been this artificial value position, I think, especially with social media that, you know, you have to have big opinion on yeah. virtually everything. everything otherwise what are you why are you mm-hmm. and i'm like i kind of just enjoy sharing space with my with my people mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i've got folks who work in marketing that are creators that have nine to fives yeah work in startup and i think like we're all kind of able to sort of live autonomously Mm-hmm. from one another's uh, value that we place on each other so that we don't interpret, you know, others' success and lifestyles as, like, net positive or net negative yeah. on our own. Yeah, totally. I, My two best friends from high school, Nathan and Josh, we met 2001, freshman year of high school, still two best friends to this day. Um, it's a very similar relationship. And one of the things that, I love so much about those two relationships are that they don't give a fuck about what I do. Mm. They have no interest in motocross. Uh, and when we hang out, we don't like, we'll talk about work, but it's, you know, not the, the meat of the conversation. If you will, like it's, there's so many other things. Yeah. Like it's honestly, it's always like the, the like starter, like, Oh, Hey, how's work going? And, I'll share whatever's going on. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, how's work going for you? Like Nathan's a full-time truck driver. And then my other friend, Josh, he works, um, for Northrop Grumman. Mm. Um, very different, very different. Yeah. So like <laughs> some stuff he can't even tell me, like he's in like at one point for a couple of years, he was in like a classified, uh, like a classified contract with the government where he couldn't even say what he was doing or what he was working on. Um, so He's out the kind of friends I need. Yeah, you know, yeah. The ones who l- legally can't tell me yeah. anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then I, I would just like, I would be like, I know what you're doing. You're like, okay, what, what am I doing? I'm like, 
you guys are building some sort of bomb to go over to North Korea and just like destroy North Korea. I, I just, it's all wow. good. I know. Wow. And, yeah. And he, he, Kelly he, told me. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 After and, last week's meeting. <laughs> he would know, he was always just like, you know, just dead, you know, no smile, no, no nothing. Just like, mm. oh, you know, and it's like, That's okay. Um, but like, yeah, we like, it doesn't matter what's going on in our lives. Like, it's just always the same. And mm. like, they've been there for me in some of my like shittiest worst times mm. and vice versa. And it's just like no judgment, no nothing. Right. And it's like, this is how it's supposed to be. And it's obviously the same for my wife and I. It's ex- like very similar relationship. And I'm super thankful for that. But I also don't have like a lot of friends that are f- filmmakers, photographers. I would say it's a pretty, small number right um somewhat by choice because it's also like that's not my identity Mm. you know like yeah i do this thing and i love it and that's my career and what i want to do for the rest of my life and hope i continue to do but it's not like that's not who i am i don't want to sit around and hang out and just talk about like this client or that shoot or whatever like it's like come on there's we can talk about it but there's more like we got to have more substance. Right. You know, it is funny that you say that. I think like, I don't know. I've, I've, I've kind of struggled when finding a lot of conversations, uh, away from, what am I trying to say? I, I struggle both in the cycling world, in the photographer world to find, folks who either certainly in the photo space, like I think that there's been this kind of tricky uh, transition from the lens always facing forward to now it faces towards the photographer. Mm -hmm. And that's just so not me. Mm -hmm. And I think like you, you grow up in LA and you know, you're surrounded by Hollywood and life, that lifestyle. And there's just so much peacocking that comes with that. And I just can't, I cannot keep up. Yeah. I, you know, I just don't speak that language. It doesn't interest me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that like kind of sort of fake, uh, presentation of self to yeah. me is just like so unappetizing. And so like yeah. from there, that kind of cuts off quite a bit of the photo space. And then, you know, a lot of the folks who I actually talk to and are friends with in the photo space are old school war photographers who oh, shot wow. film. Wow. You know, one of my friends, David Burnett, and I, you know, he had photographed every president. He literally goes, if there's like a, a a hearing, you know, at the Capitol, he will be the guy who has a, a six by seven old, you know, camera that's made out of the same wood as the table that they're to shoot and just like, yeah. you know, shoot film. And we just talk about that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. You know, it's a... Uh, I can't, I can't keep up, you know, maybe I just kind of approach it either in a bit of a more jaded sense, but I, I, yeah, Yeah. I think between that and the same thing with cycling, like I, I just, I used to be able to talk bikes all day, every day. I was obsessed. It was my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It, It is what it is. But now I, you know, when I'm not shooting cycling or, you know, working closely with the teams that I work with, like mm. I kind of turn off. I have yeah. to, yeah. I actually have to. Yeah. And you know, a lot of folks in cycling, 
I think is interesting because I, I'm surrounded by a lot of really, you know, colorful, cool, fantastical people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I learned, I think I learned last year that a lot of times people will go through me to try and get access to them. Yep. Which yeah. then again, okay, great. Mm-hmm. Now I need to separate myself from that because then it's mm-hmm. just you know this yeah. this weird, which I guess is kind of the 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 same thing I guess in a lot of lives that I've you know lived through these different like spaces, mm-hmm. you know, and in documenting celebrity or you know queer royalty, mm-hmm. cycling space stuff mm-hmm. like that, and so I guess it's kind of part of the territory. But I think what I'm saying is I I've kind of leaned into keeping my circle small yep. as well. Yeah. You know, just to keep it uh nostalgic and nice and pleasant. Yeah. Um and I think it's weird now because when I was in high school and racing my bike all day every day, I think my senior year I missed like 12 weeks because I was traveling around the world so much. Okay. And so I developed this like, you know, this ism to the point of where I would have birthdays and I'd try to invite every single person I ever knew because mm. I just wanted to be surrounded by people because mm-hmm. I missed out on, I didn't go to a single party in all of like high school, mm-hmm. you know, it was just not my life. Yeah. And so now I've gotten to the point where, you know, I, I've got my little tribe, yep. I got my peeps, yeah. you know, go, go to one of our, each other's like places, have a nice little dinner yeah, and talk about life. Yeah. The meaning. Yeah. As some would say. Yeah. Uh, and then just kind of go on. Yeah. That, that's literally like my, like, so my buddy Josh and I and Nathan, when we hang out and it's us, like, are we get in the most like deep philosophical conversations just about love. life and love it. Yeah. Like life and love and like it, like, <laughs> so for some context, um, like the one thing, I didn't have a lot of routine growing up. There was a lot of just kind of, as change. I just, yeah, change and kind of this weird level of controlled chaos. So I was always like, now I'm like crave structure and routine and mm. um, been able to like help pave that lane for myself. But in high school, the one like thing I was able to look forward to aside from my weekends on my dirt bike, Friday nights, um, me, Josh, Nathan, both, we had Disneyland passes. And so on Fridays after school, my mom or one of their moms would pick us up and take us to Disneyland and mm. drop us off. And we would, we would stay till midnight and just mm. be idiots, run a, run amok. And like at that time in high school, you're like trying to figure out like, how do I talk to a girl? Mm. That girl over there is cute. How do I do this? Like it mainly just being terrified of women, I would say yeah. <laughs> as a yeah. teenage boy, Same. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I still, uh, I still am. Sometimes I can't believe I'm married. I'm, I'm like, I don't know how this happened. Um, but now like that tradition is still a thing. Um, and especially with Josh and I, like we have passes and not every Friday, but I would say once a month mm-hmm. we'll find a Friday and we do Disneyland to this day. Nice. Run amok. Yeah. We, yeah. It's kick more over of trash cans. We don't kick over trash cans anymore. <laughs> we may or may not have done that shit when we were in high school, but now it's just like, we'll go to the California adventure cause they serve alcohol and we'll get a, we'll get a drink and we'll just walk. We'll literally just do loops around the park and won't even go on rides. And we'll, just, walk. we'll just talk just yeah. about anything and everything. And it's just like, 
it's almost therapeutic. Yeah. You know, I I love, that's one of the things that I love about Los Angeles is it is so, I don't know, understand people say like LA is not walkable because it's so spread out. I love that. I love being able to start at one end a uh, sunset Boulevard in Beverly mm-hmm. Hills, and then walking all the way down to the point you hit Thai town mm-hmm. and yeah. you just see so many historical, you know, long lasting institutional, whatever, like places, interesting looking people. Yeah. And like, for me, it's, it's, that is where I've come up with some of my best ideas. Yeah. It's just like, you know, having some kind of like light exposure to, you know, color and lights and and people or you hear things or you smell something and like mm-hmm. to me you don't that's kind of a rarity to be able yeah. to find that you know level of you know walkability and kind of exposure to some you know elements uh and so i i get that if yeah. i go if i had disneyland as close to my place as you yeah. i'd probably just want to walk around the park and just look at people and people watch and have a beverage oh and that's... just get the brain kind of working yeah that's that's <clears throat> my wife and i so that's what we'll literally do sometimes like right now when we have our doctor's appointments for our little one our routine is we go we go to the doctor's office do that deal. And then afterwards we go to Disneyland and we'll do like a dinner date. We did this last week, had a dinner date at Disneyland mm. and we were, we were, we had a reservation for the restaurant we ate at, but we had to wait for a little bit. And so we're sitting on, on main street inside Disneyland and just like watching people. Mm. And I'm like, man, I told her, I'm like, I could just fucking stay here the rest of the night and just watch people. It's mm. so fascinating to just see the different walks of life. And I always like to think about like, what's your story? Yeah. Like, How'd you in like how'd you get here? What are your right. thoughts? Are you enjoying it? What do you not like? like right. It's the people watching there is unreal. Yeah. Unreal. I feel like you just like in our in our industry, you just have to have maintained that level of curiosity since you were a child. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to turn over stones. Yeah. Do you, I want to get back to the cycling stuff, but, oh, yeah. uh, but before we do that, I like with all the travel that you've done mm-hmm. and then being based in LA, my experience with all my travel, like uh, most of my travels in the Midwest or in the South and I'm going like these pretty rural podunk areas mm-hmm. that, um, I, I don't know what the kind way to word this is, but like my views Be careful they're listening i yeah uh, I, I definitely don't align with whatever their views are uh. <clears throat> but i've learned to like i guess understand why they think that way because if they're in a town of 500 or whatever they've never fucking left that place mm-hmm. and they see california specifically la is like these devil worshipers like i've literally had people tell me this before like oh you're from one of those that devil city and it's mm-hmm. like it's not that bad. Um, but it's mainly appreciate like, you know, where I've come from and like where I live. And I'm just curious, like for you, if that's something that you felt and noticed, cause I love the diversity here. Like mm-hmm. there's all kinds of like different people and walks of life. And right. I think that's what makes it so fucking magical. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, you know, there are different ways to kind of approach that question. I think for me personally, I, I do love where I live for a number of reasons. It's it's a melting pot. It's where my family is. Yeah. Uh, it's nostalgic. I I you know the weather's nice. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think for me that I get asked often, you know, Kit, you travel so much. Why would you want to stay in a place like L.A. where it's like so expensive or whatever? And I'm like, because I, I, since I learned this about myself when I was 16 and I started to travel internationally often for racing, Mm -hmm. I do really well when I'm not home, knowing that home is there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the more that I'm able to, you know, I could be gone for six months Mm -hmm. in which I have done those trips before, Mm -hmm. but knowing and understanding that there's a brick and mortar somewhere, you know, back in my little part of the world, yeah. uh, that to me has enabled me to feel the confidence to be able to go out and do some buck wild shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. if I, I have friends who lead and live that like no digital nomad kind of always working remote lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I think like logistically that, that is tricky just because I, it's not just me and a laptop, it's me and a ton of equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, but also at the same time, like I love having some, some roots in the soil. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that allows me to kind of branch off to, you know, do all sorts of stuff. And I think like, I don't know, in, in personally and professionally, like I, I go to all sorts of parts of the world where, you know, there is a, as a queer person, like, you know, they're, I've, I've heard it all. Uh, I also am understanding that I have quite a bit of passing privilege. Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of like, you know, be covert and going into a lot of the towns and cities and yeah. places that I visit. And I think like for me, whenever I'm approaching some sort of subject matter, you know, I've had people from both sides of the aisle attack me for all sorts of reasons, whether it's telling the story itself, not telling the story a certain way for enabling quote unquote, another side of the story or mm-hmm. giving it oxygen. And I think like, for me, I go into these situations and I, my, my allegiance is not towards a side. It is towards the truth of the story itself. Yes. And I think like, having honest storytelling is obviously such a critical important piece to how our just world functions mm-hmm. um and how we interact and communicate mm-hmm. and so you know i i'm always i'm always drawn to places where people feel the most authentic version of themselves mm-hmm. whether that is a wedding or you know a, a naughty scary crazy part of the world mm-hmm. or you know a drag bar like to me mm-hmm. that is it's a really fascinating interesting um relationship with my surrounding and so you know i kind of i go in and i try to limit as much of a footprint as i can and just kind of like sit back and observe yeah you know it's i get a little bit more personal about it say in the cycling space because it is so i don't i don't interpret you know the blows that i have to register from people being just you know, homophobic or terrible, mm-hmm. uh, based on their locale, you know, people are just people. And I've heard it from coast yeah. to coast around the world. It is what it is. Yeah. And so, you know, I, does it affect me? Of course it does. I'm, I'm a human being. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, I think like, at least from a photojournalistic sense, I don't, uh, I am able to manage that emotionally way better 
than when I have people from the cycling community, you know, messaging me, you know, horrible homophobic slurs and things to this day. Really? Um, yeah, it's, it's alive and well, you know, it just, it is what it is. Yeah. And Jeez. you know, people don't like change and people interpret me in all sorts of different ways. And I can't, uh, you know, I just have to kind of focus on the task at hand. Yeah. What for you, I mean, if you want to talk about it all, at what point did, I guess you come out or like realize that part? Well, I think like, you know, my, I've told the story a bit, a few times now, but I think like, you know, for me, I, I was racing at the, the top of my field for the discipline as mm-hmm. a track racer, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, I kind of started to, I started to begin to understand who I truly was when I was probably about 16, 17. Okay. But, you know, I was also actively racing around the world in countries where it was either illegal mm-hmm. to be gay or mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, sharing space with people who were wholeheartedly against that. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I was scared shitless. Yeah. And the thing that was, you know, when I go and I, I'm covering, uh, uh, you know, a, a complicated or scary or, you know, frontline story, it's, I can normally now just from experience register like where the threat and the danger is. Okay. In cycling, I can't, you know, it's, it's, okay. it's like going to, to, family Thanksgiving and, you know, someone on the other end of the table just stands up and throws the, the turkey at you and starts calling you names. Like you just never know. Mm -hmm. And so cycling, I, the entire sport is very camouflage for me just because I know it so well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, there are plenty of people who I don't talk to Mm -hmm. anymore since you know, coming out. Yeah. And, you know, after I think when I was in 21, I remember I was in Uruguay on a trip with the national team and, you know, I looked left and looked right. And I was kind of thinking to myself, this is essentially the highest level of the sport that I kind of want to achieve. You know, I, I'm racing around the world as a track rider, uh, you know, I'm doing some stuff on the national team with the road program. Mm-hmm. I didn't have dreams of going to the Tour de France or anything like that. You know, the Olympics are, uh, you know, that's always a dream. But otherwise, like, this is kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it all. Yeah, yeah. And I am scared to death to actually be authentic. And so I just left cold turkey. Wow. At 21. Was that hard? Oh, my God. I had, like the gnarliest identity crisis. I, you know, when I worked at Oakley the first two, three years, I, you know, I was diagnosed with chronic stress syndrome because I was pulling such long hours with such little sleep because I was trying to rebuild my identity. Mm -hmm. Like it was a, it was really fucked up. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the Orlando shooting happened Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, 2016. Mm -hmm. And, I thought to myself, you know, a friend of mine had kind of like inspired me with an idea of you can, you can inspire your neighbor with your breath is essentially what it came down to. 
and your actions and who you are and what you are. And, uh, the morning after the Orlando shooting, I, uh, I came out. Wow. Okay. And you know, it was a blend of all sorts of reception. My family was wonderful. Okay. You know, my closest friends were great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also don't talk to a lot of people and, you know, I came from action sports world in Oakley. I, yeah. you know, came cycling is a, is a very traditional old school blue collar sport, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of guys wearing Lycra and shaving their bodies <laughs> on yeah. bicycles, like yeah. one would think, not the case. Yeah. You know, and so like when I eventually got asked by, you know, Justin Williams, mm-hmm. my friend that I've known since I was 12 years old, uh, to come in and shoot Legion, mm-hmm. uh, originally I told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> okay. I was like, there's no chance. Uh-huh. There's no chance I'm doing it. Okay. Uh, I left that sport at this point, what it was like, nine, 10 years ago for a very specific reason. And I just don't have any interest in like coming into back into that space. Yeah. And he's like, no man, like it's different. It's different. And like, if you know, Justin, you know, and you, you witnessed him last year, like he can raw, raw uh, water to turn into ice. Like he's, he's just that good. And so I was like, fine, (laughs) go to team (laughs) camp. Uh, like, Early 2021, uh, I had just stopped uh, the year before I had just completed a photograph or not 20. Yeah, 2021. The year before I had, um, you know, completed photographing on Kamala Harris's uh, presidential campaign. Okay. And so it was kind of like, you know, I think, you know, I can document the black lives matter movement within cycling, you know, that yeah, has a kind yeah. of a direct connection to a lot of the, the black lives matter storytelling that I was covering in the, the years prior. And, um, he was right. It yeah. was different. Yeah. Uh, correction. Legion was different. Mm. The sport of cycling is very similar. It, if it's one thing that the old guard does not like, it is change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I think like Legion in and of itself, you know, because of how uh, borderline militant it is in mm-hmm. terms of the way that it rejects the old way of doing things, mm-hmm. uh, the way that it protects its riders from the cycling industry as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, the way that it just perceives success differently than a lot of people who've been doing this sport for a very long time. Yeah. Um, people don't like change. And so Legion as a, as a, as a medium, and I had very kind of like similar relationships to this sport because all that we were was change. Yeah. And so I think like probably six months in was the first time that I, you know, got picked up on people, you know, feeling a certain way about me being in the sport again, mm-hmm. you know, and started to get messages in my DMs and, Jesus. you know, people calling me a fucking faggot or to stay away from junior riders uh, or to, you know, just really awesome stuff, you know? Yeah. And so, and that's the thing that was really 
a bummer because I couldn't see it coming. You know, mm. I could not, I couldn't tell where these people were coming from, who they were, how they were, why they were. And so over the longest time, I really didn't want to play outside of Legion's walls because mm. it was very much my like kind of safe space and the riders were safe. Mm. Uh, you know, Kendall, Ryan and I, you know, we used to date when we were 15, 16 years old. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I've known these people for way too long. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the thing that we also realize is that Legion can't be a, uh, a refugee camp for the different. Okay. You know, if it's just Legion versus the world always, then it's not a scalable solution. It doesn't prove out its methodology of creating equitable, you know, equal spaces mm -hmm. for all sorts of people based on who they are, what they are, why they are. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's our job to continue to tell these stories so that it impacts and changes the entire sport, uh, you know, both in and outside of Legion's walls. Mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, if, if it comes down to some kid somewhere, Knowing that, you know, someone as cool as Justin Williams and his gay photographer are able to tell cool stories and kind of re-tinker the measurement of success and what it actually means to be not a pro bicycle racer, but a pro athlete. You know, I'm just trying to be the person that I needed when I was 16 mm -hmm. in cycling. Mm -hmm. And, you know... I'm, I'm still waiting for the day for that first pro to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's pause right there real quick. I need to go to the bathroom. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so when I was in high, so I grew up in like old school punk rock music. Um, nice. and when I was in high school, there was like maybe two punk rock kids. Hmm. There wasn't a lot of them, but I always identified with them. And one of them ended up becoming a friend of mine. His name was Ian. <clears throat> and, the nicest fucking person mm. probably ever met. So kind. And he, you know, he was like using Elmer's glue in his hair to do the mohawks. I'm you know, dead. You know, <laughs> like the, that like quintessential like punk rock. I know exactly rock. what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I always remember like these little, he's like punk rock kids are so kind and polite and just like, they don't care who you are mm. or or what you are or anything. Like they're we're always very accepting. And then you know, on the other side, there was like the jocks that were exactly what you would think, the quintessential jock. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is you know, it was very interesting to me, like learning this and like <clears throat> I just grew up my mom and I didn't have a like a dad. So it was like kind of navigating these things on my own and trying to like figure out who I was and you know, like I always was like, who gives a shit who you are? what you are like just be kind and accepting like everyone wants to be respected right mm -hmm. no matter what and then <clears throat> when i worked at disneyland and i was just telling the story the other day some of my best friends were gay or transitioning mm -hmm. like literally in the middle of a transitioning and no one fucking cared at all like got along we could talk about it it wasn't a thing it was just like fuck yeah that's cool we could mm -hmm. talk about it it was just it was like a very accepting world and one of our really close friends still to this day um we met at disneyland he still works out there he's moved up he's a pretty like big manager out there he came out um oh man like eight nine years ago 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he was one of my groomsmen in mm-hmm. my wedding. And it was just like, we were like, fuck yeah, man. That's all like, cool. It, love it. Here for you. You know, if you need any help, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, it blows my mind to this day to like what you're saying. People are coming into your DMS and saying this shit. Mm-hmm. I don't get it because you want to be respected for who you are. Mm. And same for me. And same for those people have those beliefs. Again, don't agree with those beliefs, but like those people want to be respected too for whatever. So it's like, why can't we all just figure this out and just be kind to everyone and just let people be like, Mm -hmm. let them be who they want to be. Unless you're fucking physically hurting somebody we have a problem. Right. But like, it is quite interesting to me how, you know, the rule of law always was meant to enforce when, you know, based on interpretation and over the years, it has been very problematic, but theoretically what is wrong and that mm-hmm. is enforced. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that people now have, weaponized the way that people love mm-hmm. as being, you know, a criminal offense. It's just kind of baffling. I, yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I, uh, you know, and I think like I, I, the thing that I just love about, and here's the thing, there's, there's so many different types of queer spaces. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've met with folks who come from the queer space and they have quite a bit of trauma that they still have to sort through because a lot of times they come from their own little war torn part of the country or world or whatever, where they've been chased out of their town or church or home or community or for whatever reason. And it's like, how could they not just be impacted by that and be pissed off? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think like, but in a lot of the, the the lovely communities that I've found in the pockets of, you know, the queer world, uh, it is amazing to see when you can find someone who can take that hurt that they've felt and let it filter through them, mm-hmm. not dictate them. Mm-hmm. And from there, they can use that to inform on how they treat others. Yeah. And I think like that kind of goes with a lot of, you know, trauma that, you know, both folks in the, in the, you know, if you're straight or if you're in the queer space or whatever you are, Mm -hmm. you know, most people don't know how to allow the buck to stop with them, you Mm -hmm. know, based on how they're raised, what their family values are, you know, what their significant others values are, you know? And so I think it's, it, uh, For me, there's nothing more special than being able to be in a community of folks that just are trying to build and defend, you know, safe space Mm -hmm. uh, that is fundamentally rooted in loving one another. I do um, an organization that I uh, work and volunteer with, you know, from a photographic capacity often is... uh, an organization called camp brave trails and brave trails. Uh, it, 
It's a camp that has uh, programming in California as well as Maryland. Mm-hmm. And they host all sorts of different stuff, mental health services, year-round programming. Um, but they're like they're rooted in their summer camp programming. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to Camp Brave Trails, you you know, in face value, it is very similar to like any traditional camp. There's archery, there is a pool, mm-hmm. there's arts and crafts. Uh, there's the mess hall, uh, but then there's also, you know, drag workshops, Mm -hmm. you know, and these kids are (laughs) doing butterfly drag, Mm -hmm. you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you have kids learning about queer theory and social justice Mm -hmm. and poetry Mm -hmm. and just so many amazing things because the whole idea is to create you know, the queer leaders of tomorrow, you know, youth leadership development. Yeah. And the cabins are not sorted by gender. They're separated by age. So you have the 15s or 16s or 17s. Mm -hmm. None of, nothing is gendered. The bathrooms are not gendered. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these kids, they share and they listen. Yeah. And every year it is, I do my best to be there for, as much as I can, because it is such a, you know, I never cry more than at a camp brave trails because it's, it's just like, it's ringing out all the, the, the hurt that you feel the 12 other months of the year. Yeah. And in that little, that little moment in time, it, it, uh, it just is, it fills my heart with so much joy. Yeah. And I could not, you know, if you're a, a, parent or a friend or a sibling or someone looking for kind of a safe queer space, I could not recommend Camp Brave Trails more. Oh, (laughs) institution, just best in class. Yeah. How, um, for you, your, your outside, I mean, your relationship with the bicycle as a whole, as a whole, not cycling, but like the bicycle. Mm-hmm. Do you still love being on a bicycle or is it like not a um, thing for you because of everything that you've experienced and had to deal with? I don't necessarily know if it's trauma that doesn't make me want to ride anywhere near as much as I was, mm-hmm. or if it's the, you know, you, you get pretty good at something yeah. and then you stop making it your life and then it just doesn't make you know you're clearly not as good as it yeah as you were yeah and so you know for me cycling is like it's naturally just like difficult Mm -hmm. to be good you got to be good and you got to like commit Mm -hmm. um you know to be sucking wind through a straw uh and getting dropped all the time like you know that's (laughs) from the space that i came from to where i am now that's that's a little bit of a pill to take. Mm-hmm. Um, I do enjoy riding my bike. I do enjoy, you know, pedaling around the city and, you know, townie bike and stuff like that. Uh, you know, hardcore, you know, hitting the, the road for six or seven hours and just getting lost in the hills and stuff. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've done one of those. Yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah. I, but I know I have 
photographed that yeah. from the back of a truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been on many of those rides just in a different capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I find, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to provoke that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so when we, when Jen and I did that project with you guys in 21, Mm -hmm. um, in Tulsa, I had kind of been wanting to get a gravel bike that for some reason that, that side of cycling interested me. Yeah. And then after that, a lot of people after that experience being in Tulsa with you guys, I was like, I need a fucking gravel. I want a gravel bike so badly. (laughs) So the end of, uh, end of 21, I found a gravel bike on offer up for pretty cheap, bought it. And I've been into that for the last couple of years. And it's a way for me to like still be on two wheels. Like I have no desire to throw a leg over a dirt bike Hmm. like ever again. Like I'm good with that. Right. And the, the gravel bike is a way to like still be on two wheels, but feel more safe, mm-hmm. if you will, and less, less of a risk. But in doing that project with you guys and learning about the history of cycling and, and I had a lot of conversations with Jen about the state of cycling yeah. and it was very eye opening about just how old school it was mm-hmm. and like what Legion was doing. And I was like, okay. And then I have a few friends that are like, pretty heavy into gravel riding and they would tell me the same thing. Like when they found out I was doing that project with you guys, they were like, Oh my fucking God. Like that is like that. It was like a level of celebrity to them that they're like, I can't believe you're getting to hang out with those, those people. But they've also said the same thing about just cycling and how it's very rigid. It's very stuck in these old ways, blah, blah, blah. So I like when I ride my bike, I like, one of my kits, it's like this neon pink jersey mm-hmm. and they're like dark navy blue bib. Uh, and then I have these like really bright neon pink socks that I wore <laughs> for my wedding day. So I'll like, I wear that and I always have my jersey unzipped. So mm-hmm. it's just flapping. Yeah. And I, I kind of do that to like, it's my way of like, I hope it's fucking pissing people off that right. are on the trail that oh are like, God. just so, you know, like hardcore, hardcore. And then there, there's me that's just jersey flapping in the, in the wind unzipped bright neon pink and just like fuck you guys that's funny like it's my way of like get the fuck over yourself mm. whether or not that's how it's perceived i don't know but in my head that's how it makes me feel so i like yeah. i'm gravel is funny it's it's gravel has become the final frontier in many mm-hmm. ways in mm-hmm. cycling and you know people it's it's the the smallest big sector of the sport and the biggest small sector of the sport, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really popular. There's a lot of demand around it. You know, it hasn't necessarily been truly, um, you know, rules and regulations and series and leagues and all that stuff. Like it hasn't really fully made its way into it. There's, you know, there's a few big gravel off-road, you know, series and stuff now Mm -hmm. and people can actively make themselves into gravel riding off-road you know brand ambassador influencer people and Mm -hmm. they call them they're called privateers okay um back in my day (laughs) you were just called a broke track racer (laughs) (laughs) with your own personal sponsors yeah but you know now they're privateers it's fine okay so um 
Yeah, I think like the 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 tricky thing that I've that I've witnessed from my time of racing until now is that you know s- cycling historically there are two kind of big flaws uh, within the sport. One, everyone is kind of designed to look the same and act the same and read off the same script. Mm-hmm. Just fundamentally, you you go to a team camp and virtually everyone is is like a clone bot okay. of one another, okay. um, and because there is this inherent issue within the sport of it doesn't ask what are you or all that it asks is what are you not why are you okay you know and i think the thing that's very with interesting within legions walls is like we were borderline obsessed of trying to like you know identify who you are at your core what do you like doing off the bike as much as you do on the bike mm-hmm. and a lot of the athletes on these programs, like their contracts are built around that. You know, it's, it's not just winning bike races. We do that. We win bike races. We get it. But what we do in the communities that we serve, what we do in terms of moving the needle, uh, for all sorts of measurements of success, you know, off the bike to build community, to provide equitable, you know, equal solutions to remove barriers to entry for fans that want to come into the sport for the first time Mm -hmm. because it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, These are things that, you know, we've, we've had longtime pros come in and out of the programs that like a lot of times they don't have, they've never been asked questions that we've asked before Mm -hmm. in decades of being in the sport. And so, you know, for us, it's, it's, that is the big thing that draws me to Legion because mm. otherwise, you know, a lot of these, these other teams, you know, I know how they're run, you know, they're, yeah. they're segregated, you know, people are divided based on, you know, either their gender or what language they speak or what country they're from. And, you know, I remember talking to, you know, partners who share partnerships with other teams around the world who have, you know, budgets that are way bigger than ours, have infinitely more resources. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always get kind of curious. I'm like, hey, like, what do you, what's our team camp like versus other team camps? <laughs> and I remember one time one of them said, like, you know, yeah, the, the athletes are segregated. The, everything is completely regimented. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of cross-pollination. The partners don't really get to mingle and hang out with the athletes or talk. And I'm like, wow, you've just described prison. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like that is, it is a manufactured old school, uh, industrial complex, you know, version of approaching the sport. And it just like, it does not do anything to grow it. No, not it at all. It just keeps the train off on, you know, at the same speed, same tracks. And it, it, that is what it is. And that's why, you know, I feel like there's this huge influx of folks wanting to go into gravel is because as well as criterium racing is because Mm -hmm. it's it's just not that yeah you know it's it's building out individuality it's prioritizing uh you know difference it's 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 a space that is open to folks who don't want to think and feel and look the same yeah totally and um you know i think for me to be able to to observe it at least within the criterium space through Legion uh, Legion's eyes is very, uh, it's been very interesting. Yeah. A lot of people don't 
you know, they just don't understand. Which leads me to the second issue is a lot of folks who retire from the sport stay in the sport. Yeah. And so they, all that they're doing is being, you know, the same ideas that they're raised to believe, the same trauma that their director, sportives, or general manager put onto them, the same level of treatment. All that that does is it gets recycled back into positions of power Mm -hmm. to which then now you just have a a same program with different sponsors. Yeah, that. And it took. Yeah. It took, you know, <clears throat> thankfully, the way that Justin perceives the world and the way that uh, he interprets success in the sport and growing up in South Central Los Angeles and, you know, what his family had to go through. Like, you know, I, I talk to Justin all the time, especially when, you know, we're very kind of like in the all in, you know, this is we're not these are non-negotiables. And I think like Justin's methodology is is strong. You know, yeah. he tells me, Kit, I've been poor my entire life. Yeah. You know, why would I sell myself out now mm-hmm. for an idea that I don't believe in? Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. <clears throat> uh, can you bring the mic closer? Oh yeah. Um, it's powerful. <laughs> I love to have. It'd be rad to have Justin on this at, at some point down the road um, and pick his brain about all this. Um. When we did the Legion project, and for those listening, you can go on YouTube onto the Rafa YouTube channel mm-hmm. and search uh, Rafa Gone Riding Tulsa. Yeah, Tough. Gone, yeah, yep. Rafa Gone Riding Tulsa Tough from 2021. That was a project that we shot where I met Kit, and I remember doing that project. And my wife and I have talked about this. Mm-hmm. We went down to uh, Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I. I hate that I ha- I'm gonna that this is my reality. I had never fucking heard of Black Wall Street mm. until 2021, being in Tulsa and going there and seeing it and and including that as part of the story. I had mm. no idea. Yeah. It was never taught in school. I was in public school. Correct. Never until that point, I had never even heard a whisper of Black Wall Street. Right. And like, so my my wife and I have talked about that recently. Like, the amount of shit in public school. From the history side of things that I just, we never talked about mm. or went over and things like Black Wall Street. I'm like, how do we not talk about this? Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah, it's sacred ground. I don't get it. Yeah. It, yeah. And it was, I remember Jen and I also talking about like, <clears throat> we wish we could have spent more time down there and like in, found a way to include more of that into, into the piece. Cause it was, I was fucking heavy. Mm-hmm. It was heavy. I remember like we get asked often why <clears throat> Tulsa just why Tulsa mm-hmm. like, you know when we're we're building out our calendar and storytelling and stuff for the year and you know it always Tulsa's our Super Bowl yeah and I think that it was in one conversation where I just kind of like blurted out because it's the only race in the country that feels like it comes as close as possible to being culturally significant to the types of conversations that we're constantly telling and yeah. preaching. Yeah. And, you know, we, we got, granted, there are plenty of great races around the country, mm-hmm. you know, but there's a very different conversation to be had 
of what is a good bike race, mm -hmm. but then also what about this space? It's like Lambo. Okay, so here's where I learned about Lambo Field in the NFL. Okay. You know, it's in uh, Green Bay. Mm -hmm. uh, in, I think we shot there during what became an, an ice storm that night. And these fans are, you know, you can become a part owner of Lambeau Field. Mm -hmm. The houses surrounding Lambeau Field are literally, they have folks designing their houses to replicate the stadium. It's an outdoor stadium. The seating is on, you know, cold metal, you know, kind of like probably what you sat on in PE class. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it is older than time. Mm -hmm. but it is so sacred and it is just so rich in history mm -hmm. and it's significant in every sense of the word of the sport mm -hmm. and cycling for us. That is our version of Tulsa. Okay. It is just sacred ground. Yeah. And the fact that we can, you know, go to black wall street, <laughs> the fact that we can go to, um, you know, shoe shopping and yeah, go and, patronize the local shops, mm -hmm. uh, meet people, learn, educate the athletes, educate ourselves. Yeah. Uh, last year we went, the Greenwood cultural center had mm -hmm. finally taken shape and, you know, it was, I mean, not a dry eye in the room. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but it was just amazing. Yeah. The, the whole space, it, it lives and breathes and it's been interesting to see it, you know, evolve now that I've been able to go back the past few years for Tulsa mm -hmm. tough. Yeah. Um, and how it's, it's oddly sort of grown, but not, uh, and taken on the shape, especially with everything that's gone on in the past few years of the greatest social justice reckoning since the civil rights era. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's an incredibly magical space. Yeah, most definitely. I hope, I hope there's an opportunity to go back there again. <clears throat> that was coming out in June. We'll be there. My baby's due in June. So <laughs> maybe, maybe 2024, uh. we can, we can figure something out. <laughs> I don't think my wife would be super psyched. Uh. Um, are you going to time crunch at all? Or no, I'm just putting on. Okay, cool. I'll just make sure. <clears throat> um, so kind of backtracking a little bit after the Orlando shooting and when you came out mm. for you, was there like, was it a weight off your shoulders to finally like have that out there? Um, or was it kind of this mixed bag of, of feelings? Um, <clears throat> I think that it was, it was certainly a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I had watched, you know, at that point, every, it gets better, come out, find your tribe, you know, we're here for you. We'll love you and we'll embrace you video on YouTube. Yeah. And I think when I first came out, obviously, you know, I, the reception with most of my like friends and family and stuff was lovely. Yeah. Um, I was also grieving with this community that I felt very impostery because I was not out yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, that was a bit of a transition and I didn't want, after this entire thing had happened that was, you know, just brutal and devastating and tragic and so fundamentally painful. Mm -hmm. um, 
I had a moment where I was like, I don't, I don't want this to be about me. Yeah. But I felt like I did want to at least show my presence mm-hmm. because the queer community had shown up for me in many times prior. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, I think in the, in the years after it was, you know, it was, it was complicated my relationship with the community itself because I found myself very much. So the first, like uh, when I left cycling and before I worked at Oakley, Mm -hmm. I had a couple months of transition and I had a friend who worked, who was a promoter at this gay club. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Hey, I'm looking for a, like, I just need a job to get me through the next couple of months before I start this thing. And he's like, well, I have this gay club, you know, mm-hmm. why don't you come? You're 21 now. Like, why don't you come work the guest list? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, cut from, yeah, racing around the world, representing Team USA. And now I'm working Hollywood and Vine <laughs> with the little checklist board. And, yeah. You know, there was, was talk about a, a transition. Yeah. And... So I, I, my like relationship to the, the queer community was queer club kids okay, and the club scene and, you know, what became club scene became like bar scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think bar scene in, in, you know, the queer community is in many ways, like similar to that in the straight community and people go to bars oftentimes for a very specific reason. Yeah. And, you know, I think that. I started to just lean in with certain crowds that were not necessarily the most healthy mm-hmm. because they were just either running from something or trying to figure out something uh, within themselves. And instead of like talking to a, a professional, mm-hmm. they would prefer to just fill themselves with vodka sodas and it'll be all right. Okay. And through that experience, you know, I just would end up having people take their anger or hurt out on themselves and me in the process, just mm-hmm. from crossfire. And so that was kind of painful because, you know, like I said before, I couldn't tell where, you know, where the hurt was coming and where the danger was. And so I would constantly find myself in a scenario where I just like, I couldn't interpret like if I was doing something wrong or if someone was just, you know, out for vengeance for the world. And then I was just in their path. Yeah. And so you do that enough times and me being from Los Angeles and having like a, a fairly simple, easy, lovely coming out story, you know, I couldn't, assimilate to that hurt yeah you know that they felt but i was i was obsessed with trying to find community i was you know i'd do anything for it i mm-hmm. wanted to be surrounded by my peers yeah. but now i'm surrounded by my peers but got nothing really to connect on you mm-hmm. know i'm not angry at the world yeah they were yeah and so in order to me in order for me to feel uh like i was part of them that like, you know, those circles, I would just subconsciously adopt their way of, you know, living and just not being on my best behavior Mm -hmm. and, you know, ultimately hurting myself 
and you know kit hurt these people hurt kit now has something to connect with this community mm-hmm. and i remember you know i think it was 2019 uh you know i i kind of felt like i was sort of bottoming out and mm-hmm. just in a lot of pain and you know i lost a friendship just from you know not being on my best behavior and i think from there i was like i i need to make a change here um because this is not it this is not the vibe yeah and i started to make myself ask the question constantly of you know who do i deserve to be around and who deserves to be around me yeah because before i was just like i just need to surround myself and the moment that i did that the 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 amount of people that i started to just slowly distance myself from my world just became incrementally lighter mm-hmm. and better and healthier and kinder and gentler mm-hmm. and from there i started to just lean into relationships that paid themselves out just through being healthy and gentle and lovely and i could have meaningful conversations with mm-hmm. and i didn't feel othered you know by my own community just because i didn't hate this same way yeah and you know and so since then that's kind of been like the 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 barometer in which i have people kind of like come into my life and so that whole transition of you know growing up in high school and not having any real relationships you know aside from a a few a few good relationships but because i was so departed from the entire experience of being in high school you know even to this day i watch any coming of age movie and i'm just like fucking bawling <laughs> i didn't have that <laughs> why yeah. i didn't go to prom didn't do grad night like you know i didn't have any parties like i think when project x came out in theaters i thought saw it six times because i was like oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm making up for for lost time yeah and now since then like I've started to lean in the fact that I I do better when I am able to at least assess and uh feel like I'm in a space that does not need to make me jeopardize my 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 true north star my mm-hmm. my morals my values stuff like that just for the sake of being surrounded by people yeah you know yeah because you can be surrounded by people but you can also be very alone yeah and oh, um, yeah yeah um, it's funny you, you saying that it makes me, it's like somewhat off topic, but also kind of on topic is like this grind culture mm-hmm. uh, that we're in. And it's like, what a grind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I've had to become very aware of people that thrive off this. Like I got to work 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. seven days a week and making you feel guilty for having interests or wanting to have time at home to be with your friends or your family. Like it always needs, always needs to be work, work, work. And like now realizing like, no, I'm not surrounding myself with these types of people. Like that's cool. If you want to fucking do that and burn yourself out and and have this miserable life at home, Mm -hmm. by all means go do that. But I'm no longer going to allow you to make me feel guilty for not having those same values because I did for a long time. Like it, 
it affected a lot of relationships I had between me and my wife at one point, me and my best friend, Josh. Like at one point we had like a falling out where we didn't talk for a year because mm -hmm. I was putting work before that friendship. I would put work before my relationship with Karen and mm -hmm. it, it like, because of the grind and you're just got to keep hustling, got to keep hustling. And now as I've gotten older, it's like, no, it's, it's good. I'm, right. I, it's okay to want to be home and to like be around like-minded people that know how to like, when it's time to work, it's time to work, right. but also understanding the value of being home. Yeah. It's, it's funny that like, you know, I don't feel like people really value the idea of a pendulum lifestyle anymore. They, mm -hmm. they, there is this level of like gaslighting and, you know, peacocking of like, I'm all in going all in working 24 seven, you know, and as someone who literally constantly is pulling 15 plus hour days, mm -hmm. traveling around the world, like doing all that stuff. Like I find no pleasure in, in touting that, like, yeah. you know, that is for me. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, one yeah. of the few things that is mine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think like I, I remember growing up, and seeing a lot of people who would kind of do that. And it just made me feel like shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and I feel like, and that's the whole kind of thing with like a lot of content creators and videographers and photographers and whatever these days that I'm finding is like, they can't help but put themselves into the story. <laughs> they mm -hmm. can't help but, you know, make themselves the, the subject. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's just, that defeats the purpose. Mm -hmm. That's like, and that's photojournalism 101. Like you do not disrupt the story. Mm -hmm. You sit, observe, be quiet, basically camouflage, mm -hmm. put that Harry Potter cloak and visibility <laughs> on top of you. And that <laughs> yeah. is, that is the relationship to your surroundings. Like, yeah. you know, and, and I learned that and it was just so thankfully valued when I, have been in so many of like some of my favorite projects over time, you know, uh, whether it was standing side by side with the now vice president, mm -hmm. you know, and, and very much just being a fly in the wall and yeah. invisible and letting everything play out. Uh, when I was shooting the NFL last year, like very much just kind of being, being invisible and also just not having much of a, you know, uh, uh, a background in NFL. So yeah. many things were new. And I think like, that's, that's kind of just the way that I tried to tell the stories and experience. It was very much from like a new fan's perspective. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. because of that, there was like no real distractions. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, aside from just one little selfie that I would post on an Instagram story, you know, at each stadium in the same spot, yeah, like yeah. that was just my little, thing yeah but otherwise like you know it doesn't i don't understand and and that whole grind culture it's just like it feels like people are actively trying to outpace one another just for the bloodthirst of it yeah not trying to create quality work yeah yeah the, i feel like the quality work is hard to find real hard to find yeah it's it's, it's bananas i um kind of on that note like talking about like not putting yourself in the story, like making yourself the subject, there was, <clears throat> I did this for a few years, this project called the spectrum series. And it was, we, I did three seasons, eight episodes a season. 
um, and it was a stocky series within the motocross industry. And it was all with prof- professional athletes shadowing them for, you know, f- five to seven days mm-hmm. and then putting together this 35 to 45 minute piece while also doing these sit down interviews and, and letting them share their story, like very authentically, like, tell me who you are mm. in over the next hour or whatever it, it would be. And I was very proud of what those things turned out to be because there was nothing like it in the sport at mm. that time. But there was certain people within the sport, these powers that be, if you will, that didn't like it because mm. these top tier athletes are talking about issues with their family and in in physical abuse that mm. they had from their dad because they didn't win this race or they didn't do that or substance abuse issues, whatever. And so it painted the sport in a bad lights, mm. quote unquote. And they didn't like that. So there was a stint where there were certain people and now it is what it is. I mean, this happened in like 2016 and I'm able to look back on it now and just be like, eh, you know, it's all good. We all, everybody moved on from it. Mm. But at the time there was like these people trying to blackball me mm. and I'm like, I'm not, and like saying that I'm paying off the riders to get them to say this stuff. And, mm. and I'm like, well, that's not true because I'm literally doing this out of my own pocket and losing your money. Back, so yeah. Like literally, literally losing money doing this. Uh, but it was like, I was like, I'm not trying to make this about me. This isn't about me. Don't be, and everyone was trying to come after me. It's not me. This is the athlete's story. I, I'll give you the fucking raw interview file. Mm. Listen to the questions I'm asking and please tell me where I'm saying, say this, say that. It's like, this is their individual story and they're going to tell however they f- want to tell it. Mm. And I'm just here to visually put those pieces together. That's all, all I'm doing. And it was this weird backlash. And then, in 2017, 2018, I did, not a lot of people saw it at all, but I did a project with a police officer in Fresno. I did mm. like 90 hours of ride-alongs mm. um, and did this whole like hour and a half long interview with this this cop. And my whole thing was like, this isn't about me and how I f- feel about police. Mm. This is purely like an objective look of here's what happened in 90 hours with this officer. And here's Mm. his perception of his career, what's going on in the world politically, all that. And it's up to the fucking viewer to decide Mm -hmm. whether or not it changes their mind or doesn't change their mind on whatever side of the aisle they're on with that. And I was always so proud of that, that piece. And it sucked because no one saw it, but I was like, man, this feels to me, it was like such an objective viewpoint where it's like, as the filmmaker, I'm not going in and saying, here's how I feel about cops. Now watch this. It's like, no, 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 no. Like my fucking opinion doesn't matter. Right. It's, it's up to you to watch this and see what you think. If it changes your perception one way or the other. And it's, it didn't get a lot of traction because Instagram and Facebook and whatnot were like pushing that shit to the bottom. And Mm. then there was like people reporting it. So then it ended up getting pulled down altogether. (laughs) So it, it exists uh, in a hard drive. It, on a hard drive. Yeah. Um, it's actually on YouTube. It's on. I have like a YouTube channel that I don't ever upload to, but it, mm. it's on there just as private, just okay. sitting there. So it's like maybe one day, but yeah, I those the the kind of project. I mean, the kind of projects. Virtually everything that I work on is 
non-objective. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I very much, you know, and that's just kind of from my, my education in photojournalism. It's not a, yeah, it's not a perspective driven thing. Like there's gonzo journalism. And I think like, you know, thinking through some of the projects that I've done, I've sure, certainly had like where I'm driving narrative specifically of, you know, when I was writing to, I had a photo series where I was writing to my 12 year old self talking about, you know, the coming out journey and mm-hmm. people who had made a direct impact in my life. And that was the, that was the direct like results of me saying, all right, the story is not this. And then I'm going to interject. I, I intentionally made the story about me, mm-hmm. but everything else, you know, when we're, when we're out and doing our job, it's, it is very much that it is the the opportunity to be nonpartisan and to share what I bear witness to and what yeah. you bear witness to. Yeah. And you know, that's, that to me is, is so special and unique. And a lot of people, it's very interesting to see how few people are able to approach a project like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, I think that everyone is so used to just having some level of like, 80% of adrenaline in their blood as they're watching something because it's, it's, you know, the Avengers, Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's such a point of view, uh, and it's so cool and it's so visceral. Um, but you know, some of my favorite projects and stories that I've told are, are so gentle mm-hmm. and so quiet that you could most likely miss it. Yeah. Um, but it's just those little nuggets and stories and pieces of truth that I think are really, uh, that move the needle in the long run. Yeah. You know, you can tell all sorts of stories about, you know, virtually anything. And I think like, you know, the, the thing that's so important to me is like just making sure that, you know, the stories are told so that they can inform a decision. Yeah. Most people want to, you know, instead of telling a story, they just want to turn the camera on themselves. And then, you know, they'll, they'll talk into a lens and, you know, they now, oh, so now you want to be a pundit. <laughs> okay. Well, don't call yourself a, a photojournalist yeah. or, a, you know, storyteller. Mm-hmm. You, you want to be a talking head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. To each their own. Um, how I'm going to backtrack, I think big time here, but how did you first pick up a camera? <clears throat> like what was the inspiration for you to like want to get behind a camera? Um, well, my dad was a photographer mm-hmm. and he, uh, yeah, he lived this life of, you know, he wanted to be a architect like his dad mm-hmm. and architects, especially back in the day, like they have cameras, they photograph, you know, space. Yeah. Um, and when he picked up his camera, he fell in love with it. And when he, uh, when he was graduating high school, he moved to Paris, became a fashion photographer. Okay. Had this honking portfolio, you know, was shooting for Depeche mode and supermodels and just wow. living this like lifestyle mm-hmm. comes back with a portfolio. That's, you know, someone two, three times his age would normally have. Mm-hmm. And that's when he started to make his transition to like, shooting with agencies, uh, Saturday night live late night with David, David Letterman, Mm -hmm. you know, having just kind of this very like visually interesting relationship with the world and being able to shoot it. Yeah. And so, um, 
when I was born, you know, I, I kind of grew up with cameras everywhere. Yeah. You know, my dad wasn't actively shooting at that point, and so I'd kind of just pick up stuff every now and then for fun. And so when I was in uh, my second or third year at Oakley, I had a um, a trip to Israel in 2014 uh, during the Gaza-Israeli summer war. Okay. And it was the first time that I'd ever been in an active war zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Ceasefires are being broken, rockets, you know, going off in the town next to us. Like, you know, there's, there's, uh, so much that you kind of like are unprepared to feel and experience and see, uh, in a space like that. And so by the time that I came back stateside, it just like my world was rocked. Mm-hmm. Foundational level, you know something is wrong with my life. What am I doing? Where am I? Like, what is the meaning? And my dad showed me an episode of vice. Mm -hmm. Um, and just as a, you know, my dad is very like, check this out, check this out. And so he sent me this thing and I watched this episode of vice and I'm like, Oh my God, Mm -hmm. that is like worth my time. It was interesting cinematically beautiful but it wasn't hard news but it wasn't a documentary but like it was just this medium Mm -hmm. and i was like wow i didn't know that that existed and so unbeknownst to me uh a couple months later half the company would be laid off c-suite down thousands of people and um we had kind of like these tiered layoffs. So I still had some time to kind of like interview around and I was talking to a few different brands and, you know, different interesting people. And I came to just realize that I didn't want to stay in brand. Uh, and I wanted to kind of like go all in, in photography and Mm -hmm. storytelling. And, uh, so my severance was spent going straight to Sammy's camera on Fairfax. Yeah. Spent it all on a, used Canon 5D Mark III where you open the card slot and it smelled like cigar smoke. Okay. Uh, and a 16 to 35. And uh, I just shot everything. And it was okay. right at the beginning of, you know, the presidential election and Trump was running. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was, a, there was a protest and something going on every single week. Yeah. Every single week. And so yeah. that's kind of where I live. Those were my weekends. Yeah. And so... You know, going through experiencing that and then my big break was uh, that summer, uh, the Standing Rock conflict had begun Mm. in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And so I got in my car and I drove across country. I was working in uh, in casting at the same time because I was like, I just wanted to learn about story. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I was getting a job on that show, you know, the, the person who was interviewing me was just like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to learn story. Well, they said, great for us. It begins in casting. So it's casting, living that life. And then on weekends, I was out you know, shooting protests and all that stuff. And, yeah. um, when we had Thanksgiving week off, I decided to drive to North Dakota, cut it into two trips it was like a 10 and a 15 hour and got into, um, I got into standing rock 
at the resistance camp and checked in. Uh, and all of 30 minutes later, it was nighttime at this point. Uh, I just see people running all out to the route 1806 bridge, which was the, the, you know, turned out to be the biggest escalation of the entire, you know, uh, you know, conflict. And basically there was, um, you know, that's where area police force and the national guard were, you know, spraying, uh, you know, what are known as the water protectors, the mm-hmm. protesters, mm-hmm. uh, with water, you know, 20 degree weather and flashbang grenades were setting things on fire. And, uh, you know, it was just this huge kind of like shit show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was incredibly visually interesting yeah. and there were no mainstream media there. And so I run to my car get my camera I'm shooting until you know four o'clock in the morning and I go back to my car filing images I'd never filed actual images at that point and so I had just posted a bunch of stuff on social media and kind of just you know you had to go to this thing called Facebook Hill which was the only part of the camp that had any sort of cell phone reception go there uploading stuff onto social and I pass out in my car. Like, I'm so dead tired. I'd just driven 15 hours. Yeah. <laughs> and then shot, you know, seven through the night. And then, you know, passed out. And then the next morning, I get out of my car and it's freezing. And we walk over uh, with blanket around me. And I just put my phone in the air. And it's just like, bzz, 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 looking down and had, you know, minutes of scrolling. And a number of those images had gone viral. Oh, wow. And, you know, by people sharing on Facebook and social and Instagram, that's what created my first relationship with CNN. It's what had my images on the air for the first time. It's going through licensing for the first time. Like Mm -hmm. that was the, that was the moment. Holy shit. And, um, yeah, that is nuts. And it also was a little, it was the first time uh, that I also felt just the power of the image because I had, uh, my images were sent out so quickly, uh, and the press release that was being issued by the resistance camp and the water protectors and the, indig- and the indigenous tribes didn't come out for days later, mm-hmm. but the Morton County Sheriff's department had sent out their press release mm-hmm. the night before, which was very in their perspective of what happened that night, yeah. which is counter to what resistance camps positioning was Mm -hmm. so it was morton county sheriff's department press release and kit cars and images not a great look yeah whoops and so i had people (laughs) oh boy word came around in the camp that there was like a snitch oh (laughs) no and you know i had people coming up to me and and you know i had this one woman slamming me on my chest, you know, crying, telling me how her friends like, you know, cornea got destroyed from pepper spray because she was wearing contact lenses and how could I like lie and and what the fuck was I doing there? And it was just like a what? Like I was just sharing pictures, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I yeah. didn't issue that press release. Yeah. But for me, it was like a really big learning moment just to kind of like talk through and understand like the, the direct impact that someone's narrative and the story behind the image and context is key, you know, how much that, that the importance around it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was like my first big education moment. That's, um, yeah. you know, granted the, the captions that I had were just as dry and, you know, non, non partisan as, as one would see and very yeah. kind of like photojournalistic standards. And, mm-hmm. um, I think like, yeah, it, uh, that was a moment for sure. Yeah. And then, and then on the drive home, that's where I started to get my first death threats. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Which was very much like, that was almost my training for shooting with Legion or any subject matter that someone didn't agree with, yeah. you know, uh, called a liar, thief, I'm going to come and get you. You know, it was a whole, all sorts of really interesting moments from that experience. And that is that shit is something I can just never relate to. The people that will take time out of their day to go on YouTube or Instagram or whatever to leave a negative comment or a message. Like, mm. I don't understand that on any level. Like, it's never... That shit's never crossed my mind one time. Even if it's something that I don't like or agree with, I'm not going to fucking leave a comment or slide into someone's DMs and say, I'm going to fucking kill you or fuck you. Or, like, I just okay, I'm going to move on. Like, I don't, I cannot relate to that whatsoever. That's so heavy. It's why, I mean, that's why a lot of the folks that I are, that I'm just like so attracted to, you know, from a a, a vibe as well as professionally and personally are like, you know, I, I know, I know plenty of photographers and videographers who, have all sorts of, you know, personal, you know, opinions on different matters, whether whether it's socially or politically or whatever. But the way that they're able to share information and mm-hmm. share imagery and share storytelling in just a very um, honest, matter-of-fact way, mm-hmm. it shows me very much on, like, who they are and what they are and what they're able, what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I watching someone being able to be professional through and through, um, versus like starting to turn into, I'm now grandstanding mm-hmm. with every single piece of, you know, content that I create, uh, I think is, is really special. Yeah. Yeah. I would say too, for you going through that experience, that's something that you are not going to learn in a film school or no. any type of educational institution. And you're not going to find a YouTube tutorial no. on that. They don't teach you how to deal with death threats there. No, no. Gosh. So how, I know you'd touched on it earlier, but how, um, coming back into cycling and joining Legion and Justin, I know you had said that when Justin had reached out to you, you were like, fuck off. But mm-hmm. how did that, I guess relationship even come about and him reaching out to you. I mean, it was very, uh, it was very spontaneous. I mean, I, like I said, I just come off of, um, you know, 2020, which was insane. And the year before was 
shooting for Kamala Harris's campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very kind of like living that, that lifestyle on the road, um, as well as going and having, uh, yeah, as well as, you know, I think my last big project of 2020 was the election cycle, you know, where I was out just in constantly stationed in States for weeks on end mm-hmm. just shooting. Yeah. And, um, I think by that point, you know, I was pretty burnt out of shooting politics in that moment. Yeah. You know, I was just constantly, not me, just like everyone, every person who had a, a camera and a profession of telling stories, like you were just constantly attacked. Yeah. And it was just such an uncomfortable space. And then, you know, I, I remember my, the day in Arizona, <laughs> my last day in Arizona, I woke up and I saw on the news uh, that Biden had been announced as president. Mm-hmm. And I go straight to uh, the election office and being interviewed is none other than uh, the QAnon shaman, uh, you know, and just shoot. And so I'm there and I'm shooting and shooting. And, you know, then uh, later that day, make my way over to the, the, um, the state house, because there's going to be a giant rally uh, of folks, you know, protesting. Mm-hmm. And I just remember walking around and because I had a camera and I looked like press, I was literally being spit on and I'm just doing my job. Oh my and I thought to my, and I called my editor and I was, you know, talking to my boyfriend at the time and I was just like, Hey, how's it going in West Hollywood? And he's like, well, it's like a ticket tape parade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, I think that's like, it's a very different side of the story than I have not been taking. You know, I've been kind of on the front line of the opposite end. Mm-hmm. And so I called my editor and I was like, Hey, I think I want to try and sneak in and get as much as I can when it's uh, nighttime in LA. Mm-hmm. Gave me the approval, drove, you know, filed my images from that day, wiped the spit off my body and just went straight and drove to LA and went in and gave him a hug and went right back out after being gone for weeks and just, you know, was on Santa Monica Boulevard photographing till the early hours of the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's. So how? <clears throat> oh, but so we're so, talking about Justin. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. so I had just come off of I was coming off of the election cycle, uh, forest fires, George Floyd. You know, it was such a horrible COVID. Yeah. It was such a like a challenging but visually interesting year, mm-hmm. and so I was kind of exhausted. So I got into, uh, I got into the next year, and Justin had reached out, and a photographer that he had that was going to be shooting his team camp. Uh, had backed out at the last minute and he's like, Hey man, you know, I got this thing and you know, the story told him, no, he kept on harping about it. I eventually caved. Um, and so I kind of just spent all of 2021 very much, uh, the initial intention was very much around like documenting the black lives matter movement within cycling. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, there was, I mean, Justin is the voice and face of black cycling in America and essentially the, the face of cycling in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think like for me, it was, it was such a special experience because I, one was with my friend, which was nice. And, you know, we traveled across the entire country and, you know, got to see him constantly as he does still to this day, like, you know, speaking, you know, sharing his ideas, sharing his thoughts, sharing his ways of wanting to change the sport. Um, you know, it was, a, it was an incredibly special experience. And I think like around three, six months in when I started to receive messages of my own, because, you know, Justin is very like, you know, he's got a very strong point of view on his yeah. perspective of the, the sport to the very, it's very similar to like, you kind of love or you love it or you don't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same thing with me, like people are very, you're either cool with kit or you're not yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. And so, especially with my affiliation with Legion, which is very uh, polarizing, a uh, big story constantly. We we're constantly in the news cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for us, uh, he was very protective big brother yeah. of me. Yeah. You know, when I finally shared with him that, you know, this was happening and he felt obviously responsible because I was in this sport because of him. Um, yeah. He got very protective for yeah. sure. Yeah. How, <clears throat> and you're still, to this day working with Justin and Legion, right? Mm-hmm. How has it gotten any better at all on that side of things or is it still the same bullshit? Um, I think it's certainly gotten, it's changed. Okay. I think like, you know, a lot of things have become normalized. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of like DEI and, uh, you know, creating spaces that are authentic to athletes and staff to rehabilitating, you know, athletes in the sport to living out the most authentic version of themselves. Like that's something that's still very strong and, and, um, a potent, uh, position Mm -hmm. within the organization. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think like for me, I, I, I work with Legion on, on all sorts of levels uh, mm-hmm. in addition to the photo. So I think like mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's been nice to just be close and, and, you know, uh, growing my relationship with Justin, growing my relationship with the team. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, you know, yeah, it's been a really fascinating space to be in. Um, you know, after having been gone for 10 years yeah. and I think like for me to see the conversations that have, you know, become normalized, uh, the positioning of people uh, and leagues and standards and ethics and principles have, you know, that goalpost has completely moved. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of money that has been pouring into the sport based off of Justin's influence mm-hmm. directly is is tantamount. Yeah. Um, you know, now it's for him, you know, and me, what it is certainly interesting is like having conversations with all sorts of people in the sport who also actively are trying to move past from those conversations. Yeah. You know, and I think it, we certainly feel a duty to hold them to task Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, how, um, 
So I know you've touched on it throughout, but last year you started doing work for the NFL. Mm -hmm. um, how did uh, how that opportunity come about for you? It was through a referral. Okay. Uh, and, you know, it was such a, a wonderful palate cleansing, wonderful experience. You know, mm -hmm. I, I worked with such a wonderful, I keep saying wonderful because it's true. Mm -hmm. I kept working with a really great team mm -hmm. of people. Um, you know, and I think like there was a part of my career for, uh, the most part where I only wanted to tell stories or document things that I felt were really moving the needle yeah. specifically around like social issues, environmental issues, mm -hmm. um, you know, politics. And it wasn't until, uh, I learned from someone, you know, much smarter than myself, uh, that it's not always about the content and the stories that you're telling, because I've worked on some stories that I, you know, I'm really proud of, but the experience was just so God awful Yeah, that yeah. you can only do that yeah. so much that it yeah. really comes down to the team. Yeah. The people who you're able to like work a 15 plus hour day with and look left and right. And you see the bed bead of sweat coming off your chin and you're just like, fuck yeah. I want to rally with these folks tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That changes literally everything. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. I, I owe it to that, that mighty crew that I got to work with throughout last season and, and, you know, get a front row seat to the biggest sport in the United States. Yeah. It's amazing. What, um, like photographically for you, what were the challenges of doing something that was so new compared to cycling and all the political stuff you'd been photographing? I think for me, like, um, the NFL is such a big, robust entity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't, you just can't fail there. Okay. And I think for me going into it, the thing that was probably the most difficult was uh, trying to understand what were the fields of play that I could access. Okay. You know, and so mm -hmm. I had a blend of shooting still and video. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, working with our social teams to try and create content and, and make it as available as quickly as possible to mm -hmm. promote and publicize. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it got to the point finally in comfortability of just like inserting myself into the middle of a huddle, you know, while these 250 pound tanks are riling each other up, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's yeah. just like a crazy experience. Uh, how do you get there? Yeah. How do you, stay invisible. What do you not do? Mm -hmm. Uh, running out with teams in the field. How do you make it look cool? Mm -hmm. What can you do? Can yeah. you even do it? Yeah. Uh, the technical aspects of it, dealing with Wi-Fi and stadiums and the internet connection. Uh, just, I think like the thing that was so interesting for me, just as much as, um, you know, shooting escalated or conflict or frontline work is just, it was challenging. Yeah. To me, that 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 is what draws me naturally to different types of work. Is it is just hard. Yeah. You know, when I last year, I uh, I had shot two seasons of The Amazing Race. Oh wow! And that same thing. It is just 
brutal, hard, long day work. Yeah. You know, it's probably the only socially acceptable job uh, that I've ever had where you can, uh, maybe aside from a riot, where you're just running all out with cameras around you mm-hmm. in a city that you've never been in. Yeah. You know, just trying to c- chase contestants. Yeah. I mean, the stories. <laughs> yeah. The stories. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like for me, being able to, to, visit these sacred ground stadiums with fans who are just obsessed Mm -hmm. with this and how it's so integrated in their lives. Um, for me, I, I was able to kind of take a lot of those learnings and insert them back into, you know, the conversations that I have with Justin Yeah, and we're talking about the sport and the different viewpoint. Now I actually understand half of the shit that he was talking about before, (laughs) because you know he 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 brings up those you know ideas as best in class, and now I have actually seen it. Yeah. Um. So that that's pretty cool. That's rad. Um. I only have a few more things here, and then get this wrapped up. But uh, is there anything for you that you've yet to photograph that you want to photograph? Oh, I mean, on my bucket list, a, a few things include, you know, White House, mm-hmm. an entire concert tour with a band. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think just kind of cool, fun stuff that are very uh, access prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I appreciate, you know, and I, you know, I've been in plenty a lot of the instances I've, I've had are, you know, being surrounded by other cameras mm-hmm. and phones and stuff like that. And that's cool. Uh, you know, especially depending on what the subject matter is, but the things that really are, I've found so interesting are the ones where I'm, I, it's just me and this person yeah, or me and the subject matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, because it, for me, it just feels like, you know, how, what shot can I get? How do I get the best shot? It, for me, it feels like there's more pressure on me to do a really good job because there's no plan B mm-hmm. if there's another person documenting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in terms of like the end goal with your career, like where do you, want to see it go or where you're at right now? Like, are you exactly where you would hope to be? I think I have this and that kind of like goes back to that whole hustle conversation that we had talked about. Like Mm -hmm. everybody, you know, it is fascinating that so many people in this world and in this life will never be settled. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty darn happy with what I'm doing. Okay. I get to travel the world and, tell stories and take pictures and shoot video and you know, I'm, I'm very content Yeah, and yeah. constantly inspired. And you know, it's these things that keep me up at night and wake me up in the morning constantly. Yeah. And so it, it, uh, I feel very lucky to have changed so much in my twenties to try and understand like the things that gravitate me and pull me in, mm-hmm. um, and things that don't. And, you know, never say never, but I, right now I'm, I'm, I could see myself doing this for the long haul. Yeah. What, a like inspiration wise, where do you pull inspiration from? Is it other photographers, films, music shows? Like what is it for you? Yeah. I'm, I'm a, a 
I totally absorb based off of people's work. I love going to galleries. Mm -hmm. My dad's always going to gallery showings and sending me stuff Mm -hmm. um, to go check out. Uh, I love checking out photo books and movies. I I absorb a lot of content and a lot of material. And I think like a lot of times it's not necessarily, I think like I will lean into stories often, but for me, I'm always curious uh, with the imagery Mm -hmm. and the stuff to kind of back it up and curious, like how was this shot pulled off? How did they get there? How did the story get impacted based on the image that I'm, I'm looking at and then also reading about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think like that, that to me is kind of like what we were talking about earlier, you know, in terms of talking about cycling and riding bikes and racing bikes. And like, yeah. there is that lifestyle that mm-hmm. for me is prologue. Yeah. And now, you know, I'm, I'm just obsessed with kind of story and, and learning and reading and mm. viewing yeah. Bearing witness to it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, do you consider yourself a realist, optimist, or a pessimist? <laughs> I'd say I'm a bit of a realist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I can't, I can't deal with pessimistic personalities. Okay. Uh, I've had supervisors mm-hmm. who were that, and that's just such a oh, oh, yeah. hard life to live. Um, and then, you know, yeah, I think I, I tend towards being a realist. All right. And then last thing I have for you, uh, what's, what's your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure? Yeah. (laughs) They can be anything. Um, uh, geez. Mine, uh, as people have come to learn and listening to this show, mine is Taco Bell. Taco Bell? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Not proud of it, but. I would Guilty pleasure. Um, I love ordering a large pizza with mushrooms. Okay. And binge watching The Office. So my wife and I, when COVID started, and that was like at the height, it got to the point where it was like, we need to get the fuck out of the house. And so we live literally straight down Catella, 15 minutes away is Disneyland. Mm. So on Friday nights, we would take the dog, we'd go out to Disneyland mm-hmm. park, and then we would walk the perimeter of Disneyland every Friday night. It was like a three and a half mile loop in mm. the middle of COVID. And there was nobody out. It was just a ghost town. Mm. And so it was like weirdly peaceful. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards we'd go to Taco Bell, order our <laughs> shit, come home, get in bed, eat Taco Bell. And we would watch the office ah. to this day. We, that is our Friday routine. The only part that has changed is instead of Disneyland, now that it's reopened, right. uh, we go down to uh, Newport Beach and we walk the Balboa Island every Friday night. Oh, fun. And then do Taco Bell <laughs> and then do The Office. <laughs> to this day, like we're going to do it this Friday. It's every fucking Friday. Uh, and we just, we go, we'll watch The Office and we'll get all the way through all nine seasons and then we just start it over again. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, though. I yeah. Mean, just as much as... How many episodes do you normally get through in a night? Oh, we'll get through like maybe three at most, okay. I would say. It's not too many, so it yeah. takes us a while to get through them. Yeah. But yeah. I, I love a good just sit and watch moment. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. Kick yeah. the feet up. Yeah. It's, yeah turn it's, off. 
So nice. I would say, too, we've also added, uh, not on Friday nights, but like during the week now, we've been watching Seinfeld when we were oh. You know what? I, I actually never got into Seinfeld. I need to start it. This is my first time watching it because I was never, I never understood it like mm-hmm. when it was on. And now being older, I was like, I want to try and like watch Seinfeld. And we're, we're I'm really enjoying it. It's okay. literally a show about nothing. And they like make fun of it throughout the series of like, it's a show about absolutely nothing. It's these three or four friends that just want to eat food, hang out with each other and, and try to have sex with whoever they can. Like, that's all it is about. And it's fucking great. That's awesome. So we've been, I've been really enjoying it. It's been fun. So yeah, there's, I mean, there just, there's so much good stuff out there. Yeah. I, I like, I weirdly watch a lot of, uh, like true crime, not mm-hmm. weirdly, I guess everybody does Love watch crime. a lot of true crime, a lot of like, yeah, just guilt. Yeah. You know, when I'm watch, I will normally watch seasons of television so much to the point of where I can just either recite the, all of what they're about to say yeah. or I can just keep it. Cause I, when I'm working or editing or whatever, I'll either have music or a show on mm-hmm. sometimes both. Okay. You know, with, with the show on mute. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, but all. I just like, I got that growing up with my mom, like having something and some sort of stimulus in the background mm-hmm. is always, that's just how I, I work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah, that's great. I love The Office. That makes me happy. That's good. It's, you know, the, I mean, you could watch. Uh, I've watched King King of the Hill. Okay. The animated version. Yeah. From uh, uh, Mr. Judge, mm-hmm. uh, thousands of times. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just go and make breakfast with that kind of in the background. <laughs> that's know. yeah. Damn it, Bobby. Oh, you know, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a show about nothing. It is, yeah. The true crime stuff. We just started watching last night uh, on Netflix. Uh, it's a small docuseries on Waco. It's called like Waco. Waco Resurrection. Yeah. Or, uh, po- something apocalypse. apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. We have, dude. We have one episode left. We're going to oh, finish it tonight. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I've, I did that one in a day. Yeah. It's. Oh, it's yeah. yeah. And then we just finished the night before. Uh, two nights ago, we finished The Last of Us. Love. Oh my gosh. Love. That may be. I have one. a watch party with a few friends of mine. We would watch that every Sunday. That so good. That may be one of the best limited series I've watched. Beautiful. Pedro Pascal. I told my wife yesterday. I'm like, I think I have a man crush on Pedro Pascal. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> we all do. That's a handsome motherfucker. I think we all do. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. He's great. Yeah, yeah, I, I, the yeah. whole show. Oh, be- yeah, yeah, beautiful. So, um, all right, I think that's all I have for you, Kit. Where um, people listening, where can they find you? Um, if you are so inclined, you can uh, go onto Instagram to at Kit Carson, okay, or kitcarson.com if you'd like to see more pictures. Perfect, sweet. Uh, anything else you want to add that we didn't touch on, or? Mm-hmm. Be well. All right. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. I fucking appreciate this. I was, I was good. I love being here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. This is an outro. I've had to record this multiple times because I keep fucking it up and I don't know what I'm supposed to say because I have discovered outros are weird. And if you ever do a podcast and you have to do your own outro, 
you will also discover that this is weird. But here we are. Trying to make it less weird, but probably making it more weird. Anyways, uh, thank you to everyone that listened to that episode. I really appreciate it. Hope every one of you enjoyed it and got some insight into and, uh, hmm. Yeah, I'm not doing this again. So we're going to roll with that fumble. Um, hmm. I hope that you got some insight and perspective uh, into the story you just heard from who was most definitely a rad individual. Um, And like I said up front, if you haven't already, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, iHeartRadio, wherever you like to cast your pods, we're there. Uh, So give it a follow, subscribe, rate, review, comment, love it, or leave it. Uh, And find us on Instagram at underscore the field experiment, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all the social stuff, because, you know, influence. And new episodes every Monday morning, 5 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, every Monday new episode uh so yeah hope to see you back again thank you to everyone that listened hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next week